Hello and welcome to Rearview, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew, and this is episode 27. I'm delighted to be joined by Drew Meehan, who is a design lead, amongst other things, for Car Design Research Limited, amongst other places. Welcome to Rearview, Drew. Let's kick straight off then. What does design lead mean? Excellent. Well, design lead, um, when you're a very small company, <laughs> means that um, essentially we are uh, uh, car design research is a trio, really. Joe Simpson, uh, Sam Livingstone, and I we work together, and we kind of form sort of three legs of a stool, um, if you will, um, as far as providing design strategy services to major automotive companies. Okay. Um- well, then that leads me straight into another question, which I had lined up for you, uh, which is what for, because I, I, I would expect most people listening would have no idea what design strategy. Well, they would expect the, the, the car companies to have this all in house. So first of all, you're a consultant, you're part of a consultancy um, group. Yeah. So car manufacturers bring this expertise in, which is, which is nice to see. Um, obviously, for you, it is very nice to see. Uh, but what what would a design strategist typically do? Well, um, honestly, the range of what we do is extremely broad. It can be um, from a company trying to understand what the next step in uh, headlamp graphics might be, and it could go all the way up to. I mean, one of our sort of you know our sort of. Uh, Icing on the cake for the for the company is we helped uh, Thomas Ingenlath um, understand what a Volvo should be when he came to Volvo from Volkswagen. So ah, okay. we worked with him to we re, we did a lot of research. We spoke to a lot of experts. We did history, and then we pulled it together into a strategy for sort of where the brand could or should go. Now that obviously is you know he's taken that and run with it and done uh, fantastic things with it, but. Um, essentially we look, we try to break down these things from an external perspective and a lot of brands recognize that internally the perspective is different than, um, what you get from the outside world or the real world. Mm -hmm. Maybe we do, um, a lot of interviews, sometimes with experts, sometimes with individuals, um, depending on the project. We also do a lot of desk research. Um, not really sort of focus groupy type of things does happen, but it's not our specialty. We'd like the sort of one-on-one conversations, get in-depth to really understand what people are thinking. Mm-hmm. And then we provide that as feedback back to the company in a sort of formed analysis. So I am a trained car designer, mm-hmm. uh, as are Joe and Sam as well, um, but we all come at it from a slightly different direction. Okay. Um, and, and, and we essentially provide that context. We give the company's context for something, not just information. Excellent. Right. Well, uh, I'm going to leave that there as a tease for everyone listening, and we will explore that later because um, there are many facets to that I wish to dig deep into. Uh, <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> but I, I want to go, as I do typically at the start, is I want to go back to when you first got interested in cars. Do you know when that was, or is this uh, is is this family folklore now that they they jokingly bring up at gatherings? And they say, oh, "Do you remember when he was there? He was always pointing out what the cars were by the lights in in the in the mirror and things like that." Um, do you know Do you know when when you did get interested in cars? Um, do you yeah. remember why? Well, it was it was. Pretty much, I think, uh, from 
birth. Um, I have, you know, drawings that I did when I was two and a half where it has mommy, daddy, my brother and the car on, you know, I mean, so it's, it was clearly, you know, clearly <laughs> part of my thinking from basically as, as far back as it goes, but I was never actually the kid who pointed out cars that much. I wasn't so much interested in, um, just knowing all the cars. I wasn't a sort of stats guy. That's okay. never been sort of my thing. I was always, um, artistic. I always just loved to draw. And so I would basically just draw cars mm. literally from the, you know, the youngest age possible. As soon as you could hold something. <laughs> as soon as I could hold something, I was drawing cars. Yeah. I mean, really, really, truly, um, the way it was, everyone's always known me as the kid who drew cars. Um, and, and that stemmed from my dad who is an engineer, but, uh, who loved, loves cars, loved cars more when he was younger. He had a, um, an alpha Julieta spider. Mm. So when he got married, when he married my mom, he had an alpha Julieta spider. And that was in the garage when I was growing up. Um, it was not running at the time. I actually never had driven in it, um, because it had been neglected and had problems and, um, but it was always there. And I think truly the idea of just sort of this amazing thing sitting in the garage just always fascinated me. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, um, and, that's interesting because we've had quite a few people on here who haven't been influenced by their family, but I mean, it's, it's, um, it is, it, I always find it fascinating to find out where people got interested because some people it's just, it's just happened. But I mean, clearly that's, that's not just happened. That is, <laughs> no, no, that's if, just... if, if that's in the garage, you cannot help it. Either you have no car soul or you are going to love cars. There's, there's no it, in between. I don't think that. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the thing is my dad always loved cars. Um, and, and he always had a bit of a quirky, um, you know, lived in a fairly conventional, uh, suburban, even semi-rural, uh, suburb of Philadelphia when I was growing up. And my dad owned Peugeots and Alfa Romeos and Volvos and, you know, before Volvos, before Volvos were, uh, the thing that you had in the suburbs, you know, I mean, mm. he had one and I grew up with that. So it's almost his sort of quirky view of of European and love of European cars that kind of really has come full circle. Was that the uh, was it the aesthetics for him? Do you know? No, actually, I don't think it was. I think he was much more fascinated by the mechanical part. He's an engineer, and mm. he, he um, I've heard these stories. Um, the, the the best story is actually he used to just for fun at the weekend take apart the engine of the Alfa Romeo entirely. Down to three piece. Um, and you know, even like the piston rings and stuff. And so he would his mother tells a story. So he's one of 11 kids, um, Irish Catholic. Um, and, and he's, he was still living at his parents' house. He was, you know, in college or something. And, uh, and his mother tells the story of coming home to find bits of the engine in the oven and bits of the engine in the freezer so that he could get them back together. Um, (laughs) You know, so, I mean, he was he was really doing it hardcore, but with the absolute minimum um, necessary to do these things, which is, I think, just incredibly impressive. Unfortunately, I never picked up that side of it. The mechanical side is not uh, was never my strength. I'm far too uh, creative and artistic for that sort of thing. I mean, I understand it. Dirty fingernails. I don't, I don't have things. that. You know, yeah, I mean, I just, just, I just don't have that in me, really, to you know, I'm, I'm just so worried about breaking things. I don't have the confidence in it. And he just had that sort of go and do it 
So he always had the car part of the weekend when I was growing up. Didn't matter which car it was. that was always, you know, sort of lying in bits around. And um, so I think it was really much more from a mechanical standpoint that he found these things interesting. And in Europe, of course, the cars were much more interesting, unique and different. And, you know, I mean, everything in the U.S. in the 70s was sort of, you know, had a very similar kind of thing. They were all sort of big pushrod V6s and V8s and stuff. And it just didn't interest him. He wanted the sort of quirky, weird, you know, desmodromic um, alpha with hard to tune carburetors and stuff. You know? <laughs> Something of a challenge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I really think it was very much that that kind of thing. So, so you're um, obviously this artistic side of you is is very prevalent. And did did that uh, I presume it shaped the way you went through school, um, choices you made subject-wise, and then um, did you go on to college, university after? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, very much so. Um, this this takes us into the sort of deep, oh, oh, you know, oh boy, where are we headed with this one? But um, so I, I was a very unhappy schoolboy because I was very artistic and the place that I lived was very much not uh, tuned to that sort of suburban America was mm. not, did not understand my passion for drawing cars. And they thought and that's you can't ridiculous. stand out, not at school. But you know, it's, it, it's a ridiculous waste of your time. You, you can't do anything with that with your life. You know, that's not a real job. You need to get a job, yeah. real job, you know, doing something like marketing or lawyer or something. Um, <laughs> And, and I just, you know, never sort of gave up with it, but that made me sort of constantly at odds, put me constantly at odds with the school and teachers and homework, especially. Um, and as a result, uh, when I was 15, um, I decided to do an exchange year, right? Go overseas. At that point, my desire to work for Pininfarina um, was already solidified in my head when I was about thirteen. I decided that that was what I wanted to do with my life. That's uh, quite—it's quite rare. Yeah. Somebody of that age can be. Yeah, that, so, so that... actually, this is a great story. So I'd always loved cars, and everybody knew that I loved cars, and I liked drawing cars, but I didn't realize it was a thing. I think that's a common theme when you hear from the—you know—you mm. don't really know that's a thing, especially for an American. Maybe Matteo knew because he's Italian, and of course, it's quite prominent sort of thing, but. For me, I didn't realize that was a, a job or a real thing that people did. Um, but my brother went on a trip to Italy and brought me back a Barago uh, 288 GTO model. And on the side of it, of course, is a little Pininfarina sticker mm -hmm. <laughs> on the model. And I thought, I wonder what that is. And I kind of looked it up and I found it and, you know, realized that this is, you know, that so many of the things that I found were the most beautiful cars in the world were all basically done, had that same signature on the side of it. And I thought, well, I'm in the wrong continent right now. This needs to change. <laughs> that is exactly that is exactly where it ended up going. Um, I essentially decided that Italy was the place I wanted to be. They understood me. Um, they were going to give me my chance to draw cars for a living. This is the thing, you know, it was sort of like this epiphany. People in Italy draw cars for a living. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so when I was uh, 15, miserable in school, I, I talked to my mom and my mom actually had done the same thing when she was 16 through her school. She had gone to France for a year. <laughs> 
and we had always had lots of foreigners in the house and things. So it wasn't sort of that big of a step. It wasn't sort of the major step that it would be maybe for other people. It was quite common for us to to have Europeans in the house and the travel. And my mom comes from Italian background. We still have cousins and things in Italy. And uh, I I said, you know, well, maybe maybe I could go to Italy. Maybe that's a thing I could do. So I signed up for an exchange program. And they said, well, you can't choose where you go. We send you where we want you to go. You can only do preferences. I said, well, that doesn't really work. I want to go to Italy. Um, <laughs> choice one, Italy. Choice two, Italy. Choice three, exactly. Italy. Choice four, so Rome, like, Italy. Like, I don't want to go to France. I've been to France. I don't like France. I want to go to Italy. That's different. <laughs> you know, very different. Um, so so um, we ended up actually calling cousins of mine, or I think at the time actually writing them a letter, uh, believe it or not. And, um, you know, they're sort of third, fourth cousins, something like that. But my mom had met them several times. She had, and they had come to our house and I said, well, you know, some of them had, one of them had sort of space in their house. The kids were all grown and out of the house and they had a big house. And they said, well, if he wants to come stay with us, he can. Mm. Um, and you know, he could go to school here. And when I found out, though, they have high schools of art in Italy. Every town or every big town has a high school of art because they choose quite early. This is now cementing into mythical status, I presume, yes, in your mind. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's sort of like, OK, this is, you know, this is clearly my my destiny. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to go study Latin and Greek and Italian history. I, I can literally go and study art in Italy. And I was like, well, this seems like what I need to do. So um, I did. <laughs> we ended up making it work um, with lots of, you know, sort of lots of convincing of the school that I should be able to go as a sort of, I, I don't even know how exactly, o- only in Italy could the kind of setup that we created work where we sort of convinced them to let me go. But I wasn't an official student, but I was sort of an official student. And but they were still OK with that. And because I was living there, they couldn't really tell me I couldn't come because of some kind of weird <laughs> requirement or something. <laughs> we ended up making it work. I went and spent a year at a high school of art in Italy. Was that as good as you hoped? Yes, it was everything I'd hoped and much, much more. I mean, it literally changed my life. It it altered my personality, quite honestly. I mean, I was kind of a shy kid who was miserable all the time. And I came back a sort of boisterous kid who <laughs> loved life. You know, it's just kind of like, it, I mean, the, the transformation was remarkable. Not to mention, I grew my hair out over the year and I looked ridiculous when I came back. Like, <laughs> You know, like some sort of crazy hippie artist I had turned into, you, you, you know. You're embodying uh, the full, the full exactly. experience. I just, I just took it all in and just, you know, okay, so here we go. Um, and, and while I was there, um, I wrote a letter to Sergio Pininfarina, which you do, right? Obviously, because obviously. you want to Pininfarina. And he wrote me back and said, come visit if you're in Turin. So I did. <laughs> I made an appointment. <laughs> And I ended up having it, what what you could call my first interview with Pininfarina when I was sixteen. Wow! With um, were you nervous? With Diego Ottina, who had designed the Testarossa, the nineteen eighty four Testarossa, and was sort of the studio chief at the time. I mean, I didn't even know who he was because you know we didn't have the internet back then. It wasn't common knowledge who was the studio chief at Pininfarina. Um, 
but that's who he was. I, you know, I, I honestly wasn't really nervous. And this is one of those weird things where I kind of didn't feel like I had anything to lose. Was it also um, the, um, I don't mean this in a harsh way, but the naivety of youth as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, don't, don't worry. If, no, if you'd done it now, absolutely. first time out. Yeah, yeah, different. absolutely. The naivety of youth that, that was in full force at the time. And I can only imagine, you know, what the letter that I wrote must have sounded like. I don't have a copy of it. I don't know how bad the Italian you was. You don't know and... this, but you've been waiting just for me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of that. I mean, it was very much like, I think it's my destiny to work for Pinaferina kind of thing, you know, and uh, clearly it spoke to him on some level because he said, come see us. Yeah, um, that's awesome. I mean, you would, I, I can't imagine that would happen today as much. Um, no, I mean, I think I think it's quite rare these days. And I, you know, I think that it, and and that, you know, I just people back. would get involved as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, I came back with just the, this entirely different attitude and this sort of newfound, well, you know, Mr. Otina told me I should do this. And so that's what I'm going to do. And um, he told me I should go to Art Center to get my education because that's that was the best school in America. And therefore, you know, if I wanted to work for them, that was my best shot. That was what he told me, and that's what I did. <laughs> but that so. that's, that has got to be so empowering, uh, and, so, and such a well, I mean, confidence is possibly not the right word. But you've gone from you know really not enjoying being around people because they don't get and what you do or what you're interested in, to going to an environment where uh, you know expression and art and culture is it's not embraced but it's it's mandatory you know it's like yeah. this is what you're here for this no 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 you're amongst friends to then being lucky enough to get to you know these these special people who are doing the thing that you've you've established recently oh crikey that's a thing i can do who, yeah. who knew and these people are saying right not a problem. What you need to do is X, Y, and Z. Go off and do that, you know, and that will get you, it gives you a good shot at, at achieving this. That must have been so, um, must, have, must have given you such a, a jolt. Yeah, yeah, well, it absolutely did. I mean, and that's what I said, you know, I came back with a sort of entirely different outlook on life. And, and I mean, you can, you can understand why. I mean, it was truly shifting, shifted everything. You know, it went from sort of, you know, a place where, uh, you know, a sort of being, I wouldn't say quite mocked, but, you know, teachers at my school just didn't understand or believe in it. And they thought this is a silly thing. It's a, it's a whim. It's a fantasy. It's not going to happen. At some point, he's going to snap back into reality and realize that he can't do this. Mm. And instead, I went off and came back and said, I've just been at the place that told me I should do this. Yeah. I am and now even more so. <laughs> I, I am now. I am now going to be, you know, the thorn in your side that I was before, except with confidence um, <laughs> and purpose. And, and purpose, exactly. And, and that's essentially what I did. And and I, um, you know, I went to a, a sort of open portfolio day, met the person from Art Center, and immediately, you know, figured out what I needed to do to apply, and did and. Um, you know, and then um, that's where things get even more strange, uh, I guess, because uh, Art Center at the time, um, Art Center is in Pasadena, mm -hmm. the legendary design school in Pasadena, where so many great designers have come from. But at the time, they had a campus in Switzerland that most people don't know about. Um, it lasted only for about 10 years. 
And um, when I found that out, I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. But I didn't figure I had much of a chance in, to get into the one in Switzerland, so I applied to the one in California. A few months later, I get a call from the person from the university saying, um, we don't think you're quite right for Pasadena, but maybe Switzerland. <laughs> and, um, and so they basically pushed my application to the Swiss campus where I was accepted. And so I ended up going to Art Center Europe. Um, and, and, you know, this just felt sort of all the more it's all happening. You know, now I've been in the right place. I'm going to Europe. I'm going back to Europe where they get me. And, you know, I'm I'll in be the middle of it all. I can visit all these places. I can visit all these places. I'll have access. I'll be able to visit Pininfarina who knows how many times a year, you know. Every Friday. <laughs> Keep bothering them exactly, um, you know, infinitely, and 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 you know that was that was what I did. Um, the only problem with that is that it's extremely expensive, mm. and so I had to sort of work. I, I worked for a full sort of year before I went there to pay for it, or to at least help help my parents pay for it, and then um, I spent uh, two two terms there, so a full sort of you know first year. Mm. Um, and I was in, in class with Karim Habib, um, now ex-chief from BMW, mm. um, among some other people who are, you know, sort of about in the industry. And it was great. You know, it was great. And I went back to Pininfarina and told them, hey, look, I'm at Art Center. And they said, great. I went back. I had an interview with Andrea Pininfarina, which is sort of, you know, meet the son of the founder kind of thing. OK, you know, this is getting better. And he was like, you're on the right track. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, and then uh, Art Center shut its doors, oh. <laughs> which, which was not good. Art Center Europe, they closed the campus. It wasn't, um, you know, sort of wasn't tenable anymore. And they closed, they decided to shut it down fairly short notice. And they said, well, you know, everybody who is here is, is allowed or able to sort of automatically be accepted in Pasadena. And I thought, well, yeah, but you know, I already was sort of passed up by Pinifarina uh, or by Pasadena. I don't feel like, I don't feel like I fit there. You know, I've, I've already been told I don't fit there. Mm. Um, so I went hunting around Europe for another alternative and ended up going to um, a school in Paris to finish my education. But that ended up being a terrible mistake. <laughs> and it all came crashing down sort of around that decision, um, essentially. So, um, you know, I went to the school, which is now called Kayapol. Um, at the time, it was called when I... When I applied to it, it was called École Supérieure de Design Industriel, ASDE. Um, while between when I had been accepted and when I went, the school had been sold, name changed, moved campus, and literally I showed up and they were kind of like, we're an entirely different school. None of the teachers who were here before are here anymore. <laughs> None of the people who you oh. expected to be here director who was the one who had brought you in is not here anymore. Um, but I was already kind of stuck, you know, I had already, I was already sort of for the year, I wasn't going to be able to go anywhere else. And I was already, I had already moved myself to Paris. It was literally like the first day of school when I found this out, not beforehand. No one had sort of said all of these things were happening. Mm. Uh, it literally was just kind of like, 
hey, welcome. This is a different place than where you were accepted to. And it was terrible because actually they'd lost all their best teachers to Strat. Um, and Strat's college in Paris was actually created because all of the professors hated the new management and decided to go off and start their own school uh, with a focus on car design specifically or uh, <laughs> industrial and car design because they felt like that was going to be minimized in the new school that had a focus on fashion. But I was stuck, like so I said. So was teasing you. Yeah, exactly. So sort of like I had gotten to the right place and then it wasn't the right place anymore. Um, but, you know, I tried to make the most of it and spent a year in Paris and, you know, did the things that I had to do. But it, it everything was a bit harder. The quality was not there. And therefore, you know, I, I didn't progress like I would have if I had mm. been um, at Art Center and really, you know, ultimately... I should have gone to Art Center Pasadena would have been the best thing. Um, or maybe Fort Time or somewhere like that. But, um, you know, I, I, I did what I could with it. And then um, at the end of it, I managed to get, um, because in France, uh, internship is sort of built in part of the education mm -hmm. at universities. And um, at, at Art Center as well, but it's also common to do it sort of after at Art Center. Um, so what I did was I managed to mix my degree thesis um, time with an internship because I'd kind of missed it by switching schools. The timings were off on sort of when the when the years, what you learned in which year and how things went. Okay. Um, so I kind of sort of jumped from sort of second year at Art Center turned into a sort of second, third year that I mixed together because of the way the classes I was sort of too advanced in some and behind in others. Um, and of course I had to learn French. Um, so, so, you know, a little thing. <laughs> just just casually drop that in here. Education is also in French, by the way. Um, so yeah, so I, I had to kind of do that. So I did my internship and I managed to get an internship in Italy at, um, a, one of the smaller, lesser known design houses, Idea Institute, which, at the time, um, was sort of in its heyday, I guess you could say. Um, it was a place that Walter de Silva worked in back mm -hmm. in a not, uh, he, he had just sort of left maybe a couple of years before I went there, but either way it was still, they, they did the Fiat Tipo mm -hmm. Tempra, the Lancia Dedra and things like that. Um, and they were kind of, they were really hitting their stride and it was the time when Fiat was really providing tons of work for these independent design houses in Turin. And I went there and I just had the most amazing experience. I, I just couldn't believe that I was sort of really doing it. Mm. Well, it was, um, it was, the, you know, you've, you've, you spotted this at 13. Yeah. You've worked all this time. How old are you by this stage? I was, I guess, only about 20. So, so, so twenty twenty one, but at that age, it's you know it's virtually a lifetime. You've mm -hmm. worked to this point, and now you're in Italy, mm -hmm. in a design studio, yeah, helping to design cars. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> skipping to yeah. work every morning type thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean that that is exactly how it was. I mean, and and you know, these are in in Italy at the time it was unpaid internships, so I was literally paying my own way. They paid me in lunch. Um, which Could to be, be fair, quite fabulous. The, 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 
the canteen there that the was was legendary and the guys from fiat actually used to schedule their meetings <laughs> so that they would have to be there for lunch I, I, no joke i mean the guys from it's actually a known thing that the guys from fiat used to schedule their meetings for like 11 or 1 so that they could accidentally have to be there every day for lunch um and i got it for free so i felt like and i could order you know sort of the whole you know you get like a whole warm meal you know, oh, whatever, you, whatever you want, and um, you know, in this small canteen that's in the basement of the villa, and you know, it was just, it was just an amazing thing. I mean, it was, a, you know, six months that I was there. I was working on my degree thesis project, um, but then also working on, you know, some actual projects, and I was helping and being part of the real thing, and it, it was just amazing because a small design team only about eight designers. So the, you know, the intern or two that happened to be in there made up, a, contributed quite a bit to the actual volume of uh, designers in the room at any one time. And that was an incredibly exciting thing. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it must be, it must be, um, I don't know, I've asked this before, but it must be such a liberating uh, experience that you're, you're able to discuss this with people who yeah. are, you know, neck deep in this as well, who've obviously got a massive passion for it. And you can, you can really get into some uh, technical nitty gritty details and, you know, argue over, I don't know, you know, the exact height of a wing mirror, for example. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. And, and it must be brilliant to be able to have those conversations with like-minded people. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, to the point where in Turin, of course, Everybody knows each other. All the designers from all the studios know each other. So when you go out on Friday night, it's not just the guys that I know from Idea, but there's guys from Fiat, there's guys from Pinafrina, there's guys from you know all around mm. because they they all live in in Turin. They all go out to the same places. I mean, car design community is small. It's you like you know that. It must be you like know, the so, uh, um, sort of like the cafe culture type but you know here, here's the car designers quarter and you know. yeah, a little bit i mean a little bit you know there's the, sort of the, the the hangouts where the car designers went and and the you know everybody kind of knows, knows each other and you know the fiat guys would you know sort of were sort of the link between all the different studios because everyone was kind of competing on the same projects yeah, you know at the time yeah. you know Intel design and pinafrina and idea and Stola and whoever who are all competing for the same, you know, to get the Punto project. Um, and then you have internal guys from Fiat doing the same. So, you know, everybody's kind of working on the same project at the same time. So, of course, you have so much in common, so much to talk about, you know, so much sh sort of shared interest that was just, um, it was just fascinating all the time. I mean, sort of every day was sort of, you know, new, exciting thing that was happening. It's, and it's like you get in your education almost 24 seven, not just. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's exactly it because, the, and, and the town just lives and breathes, uh, you know, cars and car design at mm. the time. Anyway. Um, you know, these days distinctly less, unfortunately, but, um, you know, Turin at the time was just, it was just sort of energized and full of excitement and, yeah, it was just a really cool place to be, you know, and I absolutely loved it. So, yeah. So then I, you know, did my degree project and got my degree. Um, but then comes the hard part. Well, so obviously, <laughs> you know, Pinafrina with that, here's the red carpet. Yeah, you know, yeah. Where, right, where exactly. have you been all our lives? 
Yeah, yeah. So because you know, no one the, else is applying to them, <laughs> right? No, exactly. So, so you go back to Pinaferina and you go, well, you know how you know you said to do the art center thing. Well, that didn't completely work out. So instead, I went to this crappy French school instead, <laughs> and um, you know, uh, somehow they didn't seem quite as convinced. So um, when I went to when I went back to Pinaferina, which I did do, so this is already I had already been there. For three times, so I was, you know, maybe 22 uh, my degree. I've already been there three times. <laughs> own parking uh, space out front. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, wave to the guy as I walk through. Um, you know, but at that point, they were kind of like, well, you know, we don't have a lot of internships. Obviously, demand is high. Um, we, we don't, you're definitely not ready for a job. You need more internship time. Maybe try again later kind of thing. Okay. So how did you, um, how did you, um, how did you deal with that? How did you, well, I mean, obviously it'd be quite, yeah, well, obviously quite crushing. Sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it sucks, but it also wasn't so unexpected. I mean, okay. I had a feeling I knew, I knew the sort of level that I was, that I was at, um, you know, I was disappointed obviously, but I was almost more disappointed that the whole school thing had let me down in such a way that I sort of, that, you know, despite having spent the years and the money that they hadn't prepared me in any way for Mm. working, which was their job. Um, so, um, yeah, but I still, you know, I nonetheless did the rounds and that was sort of, you know, can I have an internship or can I have a job? And if not a job, can I have an internship? Um, and that basically, was just rejection after rejection after rejection. So I went to Bertone, I went to uh, Ghia, which still existed at the time. Um, but I think I'm starting to think I'm sort of like a, a grim reaper for design studios. I mean, I think I went to I think I went to Ghia, and they said they might be interested in giving me an internship. And then when I got the letter, it was not to say that I had gotten the internship, but rather that the Gia had been closed permanently and gone under. I was sort of like, oh, okay, well, I guess I guess Gia's off the list, you know, and just cross it off permanently. Now it's just the badge on the back of a Ford. Um, so yeah, that was that was not good. But I went to all these places and I had, you know, never a particularly great interview. And by the time you know got on a bit, um, you know, I. I the writing was on the wall when I was going to these places. Um, and even the French companies did not have a good relationship with the school because, mm-hmm. of course, they had had a good relationship with the previous school. Yeah. And, you know, um, now they've sort of built it back up, apparently. But at the time, there was essentially no relationship. And I have truly the worst day of my life was the day that I had an inter- interview at Peugeot and one at Renault in the same day. And it, could not have gone more horribly wrong in both places. Um, and, and essentially it's just one of those days when you just go like, okay, maybe, maybe I should just start over again. Maybe I should think about becoming a lawyer or something like that. Um, but, but nonetheless, what happened was I interviewed lots of places and what I got was the only, uh, hook I got was Lancia, Centro Stile Lancia. Mike Robinson was the chief. He was an American think he felt a bit of a kindred spirit um, seeing this young American come in who loved Italian things and he gave me an internship okay so excellent. I came so how long did back. that take to get to the point where you got another internship so I think I was sort of on the hunt for about six months oh wow okay yeah so um, and the problem is of course that I was no longer a student so visa 
bit shady at the time. I think I, <laughs> you know, luckily there were still borders. And so what I would do is I would go to Italy for a week to do an interview or two or three and make sure that I got stamps so that when I went back to France where I was living, I could say, well, look, I've been outside the country. I've been in all these different mm, places, yeah. not overseeing my visa here. Um, I'm a tourist again, you know, even though I live here. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it took a long time, but finally I got this internship. I took all of my stuff from France and moved it home and then worked for a few months, actually, because we had sort of scheduled this internship it was sort of in the next round. And I came back and went to Lancia and did another cool internship there um, where I learned um, a very different, it was a very different world than IDEA had been because um, I mean, the studio was, was a bit of a dump, quite honestly. It was in what, what was Fiat Safety Center at the time, um, where they did crash tests downstairs. Mm -hmm. And upstairs was the Lancia Centro Stile, you know? Um, and so you could, do, you could watch a crash test at lunch, which is one of the things that we did. Um, <laughs> so, but... Um, but the people in that studio, um, I was working on a project who was, we were not involved. The interns were not involved directly in, in actual work. We were given a sort of brief to do our own project. We were in a separate room, but we were allowed to interact with the other designers. Mm. And in that room were Flavio Manzoni, now chief at Ferrari, mm -hmm. Marco Tanconi, chief at Maserati and Alfa Romeo, um, and... Um, ex Pinafarina guys, Marco Tanconi was, um, as well as, oh, I can't remember his name, guy who designed the 456 GT, who was a legend. Um, you know, and so basically it was just surrounded by people who really knew and had talent and skill and, you know, a mix of young and old. And, uh, it was, it was a very different experience, but still extremely interesting and valuable. Um, but in the end, the biggest problem was that as an American, um, I posed so many more problems giving a job than an Italian or a French or, you know, anybody else who was local and who didn't need a visa mm -hmm. to work. And, um, you know, I was always sort of, I had to be that much better and I wasn't <laughs> than everybody else. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and, and that's not something that I could have particularly done anything about that was just sort of a circumstance but again that's a bit why you know going to art center in pasadena would have given me that opportunity do internships with the american companies i wouldn't have had that problem so i had sort of created this problem for myself you know i, I realize now in the retrospect but at the time it all seemed to make sense um mm -hmm. a little bit hard to predict that it was going to happen go down quite in that way um yeah so then i basically finished that internship and went back to the US because I didn't get a job. Yeah. yeah. And um I went back to Philadelphia because I had been spending money with that I didn't have for years. Uh, you know, my parents very, very um kindly supported me. And I I would work in between these sessions, I would work and make as much money as I could. And I did all kinds of jobs and I worked at pharmaceutical companies and I worked in mailroom and I worked for a, a, a sort of car dealer who went to auctions and things. I've done all, I did all these cool things because I didn't really care what I was doing during the day. I was like, just whatever was going to make me some money and mm -hmm. sort of, um, 
so, so, you know, I, I, I basically went back to those things and said, well, I, I just, now I need, I need, I guess, to figure out what the reality is. I went back to the U S moved back in with my parents, um, got a job and continued to send letters out, work on my portfolio, that kind of thing to try to, to get interviews. And then I would come back maybe once a year to Europe and do a little tour and try to interview at places and say like, you know, can I get in here? I'm going to be in France this Mm -hmm. month, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, But it didn't work out. I didn't get a job. So I ended up doing all of the other things. (laughs) I designed everything else but cars. Um, essentially for about 15 years. You've obviously got back into <laughs> design. Yeah. So how, yeah. did, how did that happen then? Well, I mean, I never, I never was completely gone, mm. I suppose, um, because I, I kept connections to friends and people who were in it. I always tried to keep myself connected. Um, but actually, you know, what I was doing was, uh, I, you know, now when I look back, uh, the time that I spent doing, so I did, User experience design, graphic design, automotive art, illustration, technical illustration. And I basically established myself as a professional in all of those things, you know, mm. sort of like, okay, now I can do, you know, I'm trained as a car designer. I haven't done that ever professionally, but I've now done all of these other things. And it gave me a perspective on the car design mm. that I didn't have. And one of the things that I realized now, and some people said it back in the day, but I never quite understood, which was, you know, that I was too passionate about car design to be a good car designer because I had too much reverence for what has come before. Um, and that limits where you want to go if you love the things that have come before and don't see any problem with them. Oh, okay. Uh, right. So, how, how, yeah, and, so and, how would you move that on? How would you, yeah, so, how would so, you create so, the next wave? That sort of thing. Exactly. I mean, the best cars were not the ones that follow on what existed already, but the ones that break new ground yeah. and about the perspective of what would be new ground. And I, and I truly didn't have that when I was studying. I was very young. I was younger than average by far. I was, I think, maybe the youngest ever student at Art Center um, Europe when I went there. But, um, you know, so it was sort of one of those things where maturity and experience were things that I did need. Unfortunately, I had to sort of go through this whole, you know, 10 years of not doing car design to get it. Um, but I kept myself a bit connected to it all the time. I would, you know, um, stayed connected with car design news through that time. Mm -hmm. Um, which was, you know, very early website that did these things and kept me uh, connected to it. And I would stay in the forums and and have conversations and talk designers and friends of mine who were in the industry and stuff like that so kind of stayed connected all through those years and when i moved back to europe in 2010 2011 um i went to the geneva motor show um and immediately i said to my wife you know um Honey, I really think I should go to the Geneva Motor Show this year. I know that doesn't contribute directly to our income in any way, but I, I think it would be a Trust good me. idea. Yeah, exactly. I know I'm going to spend a, you know, a few hundred euro to go there, um, and it doesn't contribute in any way to my income, but I think I should go there. And when I decided, you know, when I found out that I was going there, the guys from Car Design News actually said, oh, would you be interested in doing some work for us? And that's essentially where my 
return to things came from. Um, I met Sam Livingstone at that show, and Joe Simpson was also working for Car Design News at the time. And uh, they kind of they were they were already working together, but running out of capacity for the two of them to do the work that was coming in. Mm-hmm. And they thought that I would be a, a sort of good natural match. Um, you know, I was thinking, thinking about, you know, it's sort of it's a horrible joke that those who can't teach, you know, um, yeah. uh, which, you know, it's not really fair, but there is something to that. You know, you think about a, a good, you know, a lot of football managers and stuff were not the best players. They're the ones who are the sort of mediocre player. They played but they weren't the best, but they had a perspective that maybe the best players didn't have because it comes so naturally because it comes, you know, and I kind of think of it in a very similar way. I mean, I think in a lot of ways by being a struggling car designer and not having it sort of all work out, I had a bit of an outside perspective that is quite hard to find in the car design world because it tends to be such a linear process. Most people go to a university that pushes them straight into a company and they work just company, 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 big OEMs through their whole career. And then they leave and then they get perspective, Mm. you know, Chris Bangle sort of types, you know, and then they go and they do something else outside. But once when you're inside it, it's very hard to have it because the world kind of revolves around you. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't have that. So I had a perspective coming in that I think immediately lent uh, lent itself to being able to see what you know um, what could be done better or how things could be done. And you know, I I know I'm harsh um, on Twitter and things. People think you know, oh, he's brutal. You know, he's so mean to these guys. But I don't expect anything from anyone else that I wouldn't expect from myself as a designer. I you know. If I had put this out, I would think I should be doing this better. And I think a lot of the designers often are thinking the same thing. A lot of the designers are just as embarrassed by a final product that comes out as we are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's something that's that's very hard to understand outside. And so, you know, what we do now is we help, we, we kind of work in a lot of ways. Car design research works with the design studios and teams mostly. Not the president of the company Mm. or the CEO um, or the marketing people. Sometimes they're in on it, but mostly we're working for the design chief or studio chief or an interior lead or something like that, um, who are looking for um, an advocate to help them make decisions because it's hard for them to get a true external perspective. Yeah. I mean, you you said just before there that um, some, some, many designers, some designers are, uh, embarrassed by the final product. Mm-hmm. Now, is that there's obviously then a change from what they have designed to what uh, yeah. turns up. Now, obviously, yeah. there's certain things that are done on, say, a concept um, which we know about, like the the um, virtually invisible wing mirrors and the yes. oversized wheels. Uh, although that's not as much of a difference anymore. <laughs> right? No, exactly. <laughs> Ride comfort. What's that? Um, <laughs> but uh, is it down to engineering or marketing or costs or all of the above that impact once it comes away from the designer's computer? That, yeah, that I mean, I think. It, do you think? I, I think it's it's all of the above. Uh, the The engineering usually comes first. So 
Do, do, um, do design teams... Um, sorry, I'm cutting you off here because you no, no, it's okay. another question. But do design teams work hand-in-hand hand with engineers? Or do the best of, design teams work hand-in-hand hand with engineers? Yes, well, it, it, does, it depends on the company, but it does tend to be fairly disconnected, I think, even in most, uh, even in the best. Um, I think, you know, in in the companies that sort of have things set up correctly... The design chief has a seat at the table with the engineering chief. So when those decisions are being made, they can say, you know, this is going to make a really ugly car if you do it that way, you know. Uh, and so they get things pushed. They get the overhangs reduced. They get the height of the, you know, the roof line or the the scuttle, which is, you know, height of the base of the windscreen and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, but there are always factors from marketing, from costs, from uh, engineering, from, you know, I mean, things like we're seeing now where you have maybe, for example, you know, um, electrification. So now they're building electrification in and you see these sort of weird thick cars like the Lincoln Co. that was just shown, you know, Mm. the Volvos are going to be dealing with the same thing where you have a double floor. The original A-class struggled with this had a double floor. It made it really nice to get in and out of, Yep. but it also made it slightly awkward because it was higher. You know, you yeah, sat. Well, my wife had one of those higher. until until we had to kill it, until we had to, it, it died. But Yeah, and so did I, actually. I, I love I love the thing, quite honestly. I, I couldn't stand it as a, as a vehicle, but as a piece of packaging, yeah, and for the brilliant. job it did, yes. it was yes. excellent. It's just I had other gripes with it. That... Yeah, but... <laughs> Plenty of gripes to be had, I'm sure. I actually quite loved mine, uh, an A170. So, you know, slightly more power than the average. Um, But um, nonetheless, you know, you have these compromises. It's part of the process. The designers know really going in um, what it's going to be. So it's, um, you know, so then at that point, what happens is they get focus grouped. They get marketing involved marketing says oh it's to this it's to that people said when they you want say this. sorry again i'm going to cut you off here but just for for the listeners when you say focus group what do you mean who does who would that typically uh, well so, so i mean a, a lot of companies um still do focus groups for um basically concept a, a production model that is partway through its progression of design you know, so they essentially take models of the interior, the exterior, or a whole sort of pre-production type thing, mm-hmm. um, and they will actually physically take it somewhere and let people look at it based on a database of potential buyers or something like that. And they ask them questions: Do you like it? Do you not like it? What do you like about it? You know, do you think it's the right size? Do you like the boot space? Mm-hmm. Do you like? And the problem is that as uh, as these things go, people don't necessarily know what they want in four years when that car is going to come out. Yeah, Their expectations change. And we tend to, you know, as a company, we tend to tell, please don't do that. It doesn't help. You know, you need to ask people questions that help specific things, but you need to have the confidence or the foresight to see where that actually has to go. Mm-hmm. Customers aren't going to have that. But it can happen that, for example, people say, oh, you know, what I really want is a hatchback. And then, you know, uh, somebody comes out with something with a, 
you know, with a regular boot or with a sort of wagon end to it and everybody loves it. And then all of a sudden when the car actually comes out into production, nobody wants the hatchback anymore. They, you know, those things happen in the market and, um, you know, that's what designers are sort of trained to do. I, I remember, um, Lee Walton, when he did the podcast, he said, you know, we have to live in the future kind of thing. You have to always be thinking about what is yet to come. And that's, and that is sort of the car designer's job. You know, you have to be thinking what people want next time. I'm designing now for, you know, (laughs) the the car that comes out in four or five years. Yeah. I'm thinking about the cool stuff that you have not even, that has not even crossed your mind yet. Exactly. Uh, and, And sometimes it's not the cool stuff. Sometimes it's just here's the interior of the next three series or something, Mm. you know, but nonetheless, that has to, um, that's affected by all of the things that happen in between now and then. So you have to be aware of where things are moving so that when they move, when your thing comes out, it slots into the right space. Um, and that can be typology, you know, crossovers, SUVs, um, or, you know, city cars or hatchbacks or wagons or whatever's popular at the time. Um, and that, and that shifts all the time as a sort of constant movement of those things, what people want, you know, and something like the cash comes along and it breaks everything down. Well, if you're the one who came out with the sort of small hatchback after Nissan came out with the cash you, you blew it because you essentially missed the, the zeitgeist people wanting this teeny tiny impractical SUV. Yeah, you know, but but that's what people want, and, and there's then a lot you can of see the scramble now. I mean, if, if you pick the cash guy, you can see the scramble now for exactly. everyone's trying to get. Everybody wants everything now. just to be an SUV. Their their range yeah. is becoming that. And it's... Yeah, yeah, and 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 quite honestly, you know, in all the research we've done, people actually have really good reasons for that, and and I don't necessarily fight it. No. <laughs> I kind of feel like actually crossovers really actually make a lot of sense for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. I know and I've been lucky enough you, now to, you know, after people, starting the podcast to drive somewhere I hadn't driven them before. Oh. I'd driven four by fours, but I'd not driven SUVs, uh, which are more ro- road orientated, obviously, and or, or not always as big as a a big bulky old four by four from the eighties and nineties. So, exactly. Um, you know, it does. I, I can see the attractiveness of it. it. It doesn't always suit me, but I can see the attractiveness of it for, no, exactly. for many, many people. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and you know, I think that's you know, and that's part of it too. You have to be sort of progressive and open minded. Um, you know, a lot of journalists can sort of be um, conservative and and sort of stick to you know, oh, it doesn't drive as well as the car version is like well that's pretty obvious but almost nobody is driving it on a back road in wales on a regular basis you know nobody's driving it through you know through these places that they take them on a test the fact is you know in the center of town does the extra ride height help them do the bigger tires work better yes yes for most people it does it actually makes a lot of sense and you know a little bit of extra seating height and control you know feel that they a little bit more in control in traffic by sitting up a little higher. There's no reason why that's a bad thing. And in fact, you know, if you look at the way cars have gone, you know, cars were quite vertical mm. in a, a long time ago. You know, you look at, at cars from the, the 40s and 50s, they were quite upright. And then they got lower and lower and lower. And, and it's almost, in my mind, a bit of a correction. Now, they have an aesthetic that goes with them of, you know, this is sort of lifestyle or adventure in some way, yeah. which, you know, is 
affected. It's not true, I don't think. But I understand why for people this makes sense or why they like that. But actually, the, the, the higher ride height and the higher seating height, the ability to get things out of the boot easily, to me, those all make sense. Those all are functional reasons why crossovers make sense right now. And, and you know, I think there'll probably be a shift. And, you know, Joe posted today, the fact is wagons, estates still sell more than than saloons in, in Europe. You know, good. I like unbelievable. That. I am a big fan you know, of wagons. But, but, and that's been that way for years, that, that estates are actually selling better in the premium segment um, by, by a pretty decent margin, actually, um, which is shocking to think that BMW sells more 3 Series and Mercedes sells more C-Classes and Audi sells more A4 estates than saloons you know mm. but that's a reality and in germany the numbers are sort of off the charts um, and i think it gets skewed in the uk because we're such we seem to be such fans for or definitely yeah. used to be of hatchbacks yes and if yeah. we didn't have the hatchback then that would be the way to go um, exactly I, exactly and, and and those things you know those are influences every every country has its own things in the u.s they hate uh, a vertical hatchback they're okay with a lift back but they don't really exist anymore they hate wagons but they love crossovers you know and you have to understand the reasoning why these things are happening you have to try to sort of get underneath um why they are and what you can do that fits uh, as many of those things as possible because of course you want these cars you know everybody's global now nobody's making cars specifically for certain market really anymore and and um, you know, so you're trying to hit as many things as possible that can water stuff down that can get to the point where someone goes, oh, well, it should be this for this market, this for this market. And then you put it all together and that's the wrong thing for everybody. Yeah. Well, that was something I was going to ask you about is the, the, the global yeah. design, uh, language that's, uh, coming for definitely for models now. I mean, we see it with, uh, Ford with the Mondeo here was out in America is the fusion, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's right. For a good couple of years before it came out here. Yeah. Um, do you, I mean, that's something that's been tried in the past and it's never really worked as successful. <laughs> no. Do you think that, um, companies are getting better at it or do you think we as consumers across the globe are becoming more accepting because of the access to media and our cultural differences are not as stark as they used to be? Um, wow. Yeah, that's, that's a loaded question, isn't it? I, I guess... No, no pressure, the, there will be a test. <laughs> yeah, the way, the way I see it, um, and this is truly just the way I see it, I don't think companies have gotten better at it. I think that the proliferation of models has made it work better because there are some models that still that can work better in one market or another and it sort of takes the pressure off. It used to be that they would try to make, you know, the Mondeo and the Contour the same car and they're, they're the meat of the of the market and it's like, uh, you know, if that fails then it's going to take them 6 years before they can get another thing to replace it and and that's terrible. Now you know, now with so many SUVs and crossovers and trucks and options, um, it's less, there's less pressure on any single model, I think, to sort of make that impression that it used to, especially because now almost every saloon has a crossover to match. Mm. Um, you know, you have a, a, an A4 and a Q5 or whatever you have, you know, and, and Ford has the same and BMW has the same and, 
Honda and Toyota and everybody have the same. And in, in the U.S., what works does not necessarily work here, but it doesn't cost them that much more to just sell it everywhere. And if they sell 200 of them in Europe and they sell 7 million of them in the U.S., it, it's fine. It kind of offsets the costs of importing the 200 that they did to Europe. Um, doesn't mean they're not trying. Doesn't mean they're not trying to hit all the markets. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I think, you know, the the, the U.S. and and China are interesting because I think they're they're much less of a single shaped market than people think. Um, I've I've for a very long time been an advocate of treating the U.S. as um, essentially two different markets. The coasts are very much in tune with Europe, except on the big end. So maybe think uh, Spain or Germany or somewhere like that, where they have a bit more space and they like bigger cars. Mm -hmm. The center is its own world and it's more like Australia or China or whatever. And they want massive SUVs and pickup trucks. And, um, you know, and, and that's a real thing. And there are real reasons, even if they're not, maybe, you know, we wouldn't consider them good reasons, maybe, but there are real reasons why people want that. There are real reasons why that that's what people expect. But, but when you treat the U S market as one thing, you can get in trouble. And I think more and more that's been acknowledged. If you think about the fact that they sell, for example, the Focus and Fiesta in the U.S. now, and they didn't for years mm. um, because they didn't understand how to market that. And now they realize, okay, it's not necessarily going to sell to middle America, but if you get enough buyers on the coast, that makes up for it. And, and it creates a certain, there's a, the, the buyer can be quite similar to a U.K. buyer or a German buyer or wherever um, of, of a small hatch in cities and things, people do want that. Younger people want a hatch. And for years, there was clamoring for it. And then they brought them and people bought them. You know, imagine that. Um, but then at the same time, it, it, you know, in the middle, you need sort of quite specific stuff. Um, and in China, it's quite similar because the tier one cities are quite different than the tier two, three cities, whatever it is. Um, and, and what people need in these places that are rural, that are separated, that are different, where they, the, the car has more more um, functional purpose yeah. um, it, compared to aesthetic, where cost is more of a factor than than um, you know how something drives. Maybe you know it, it, these things make sense, and that's I think companies are getting better at understanding that aspect of things. Um, that essentially they're 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 because now the niches are so small, they can create these things that fit at lower cost. They're better at platform sharing. So it doesn't cost them so much to create one single model that fits for middle America and one single model that fits for rural China. Um, but they also understand how to maybe market those things better so that it doesn't, you know, they, there used to be this idea that if Mercedes sold a small car in America, it would ruin the reputation. It's like, well, no, if Mercedes sells a, you know, Citroen AX, in America, it's going to ruin the reputation. If they sell a good small car, people will just see it as being a better option, right? And now that works. I mean, they sell, you know, GLAs and CLAs and stuff in the U.S. and and people buy them. Um, you know, so it's it's a lot about understanding how to treat those markets and knowing where to put those things and how to how to position yourself. Um, it's not just about design. The the marketing and the messaging and things also go along with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. Okay, um I think this, I think this is a after giving you quite a hard question there. <laughs> just, <laughs> I don't even remember what the question was, just off but the I went cuff off there, just you know, if you could solve all 
uh, all marketing options exactly. there for all manufacturers exactly. perfectly. Um, but uh, I think this is a good time to uh, go back through your car history. Uh, yes. Uh, when, how old are you when you passed your test? And what was the first car you drove after so you passed? I was 17 when I passed my test. Um, in, in Pennsylvania, where I grew up, 16 is the age and most, most of my friends got it sort of the day after they turned 16, which is the sort of standard way you did it. Um, I came back from Italy after I was already 17, you know, and sort of came back just when I was 17. So I had to still sort of go through the process and things. So I was, I was about a year after most of my friends. Um, but at the time I drove my parents' Volvo 240 wagon, mm-hmm. um, which is a delight. Uh, but actually my parents had two 240 wagons and one was a legendary turbo brick. Yeah. Which truly was amazing. I mean, honestly, I loved that car uh, because I learned to drift with that car. <laughs> uh, yes, it takes a allegedly. Damp- if you, if if anybody, yeah, exactly. if the family exactly. listening, exactly. <laughs> uh, I did not know, but you know, if uh, in a in a, in the right sort of damp, quiet back road, you can very slightly drift a turbo wagon because the turbo lag meant that you could essentially force it to to kick when the turbo kicked in and you could get it to, to break its grip a little bit. But really I felt like I learned to drive with that car because it was quite a thing to handle, you know, and, uh, um, but it was fun. I certainly was not one of the crazier end of driving, but, uh, you know, I did enjoy taking it out and, and, um, you know, there's something cool about it. Silver with the cool five spoke wheels, mm. the really skinny tires on that ridiculously big car. Um, <laughs> You know, so that was that was really where I started, and we had had Volvos. I mean, you know, I've already mentioned the Volvo. We we had had Volvos. That was the third Volvo in our family, and my dad was just in love with them because they lasted forever. I think that one had three hundred plus thousand miles on it. Um, and uh, but then my first car that I bought for myself came a few years after after I um, came back from university. Mm-hmm. In I came back, started working, and I bought myself an Audi. 80 quattro which i think here would have been a 90 quattro but in the u.s they kept it simple um they were all 80s and all 100s there were no 100 200 and 80 90 thing although i'm honestly not sure that the spec that they sold there actually existed in europe because there's been some debate because uh sam had one as well and he claims that i think there that spec did not exist the sort of the 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 engine quattro combo that i had maybe was a u.s only thing um but i loved that car it was amazing um and you know that was where i really kind of i fell in love with inline five cylinder engines Mm. which is a silly thing but i just I just do really enjoy them. Um, now I've gone up a cylinder and also enjoy that. But you know, <laughs> you're open um, to many cylinders as long as they're exactly. in line. As long as they're in line, um, you know, if anyone cares to bring back an inline eight, I'll give it a shot. Um, yeah, so I owned that for a few years, but then started to have some problems with the Quattro system. And I thought I should get rid of this before it sort of explodes on the motorway on the way somewhere. And I bought myself an incredibly dull but brand new um, Golf Four. Um, okay. 
guess that was around, I don't know, 98 or something like that. So I, you know, I, I sort of managed to get myself a good deal on one, um, and, um, you know, made payments for years on this piece of, um, in the U S it actually had a, a sort of a two liter four cylinder engine. So it was, it was already above, you know, it wasn't sort of a, it was a base spec by U S standards, but U S standards was already sort of fairly high spec compared to the European standard. But I remember one of the first things I did was almost drive it straight off the side of the motorway because the springs were so soft on the American version that you literally, it was as though it didn't have a suspension at all. Um, and I went into a corner one day and, and the, the dive on the thing was so harsh. What is going on? It must be broken. I took it back. To, I literally took it back to the dealer. and was like, something wrong with the springs. It's so soft. Something wrong with the, the shocks. I don't know what it is. And he's like, no, no, that's the way it's made. They put special extra soft springs on it for the U.S. market. Because you don't have corners there. Right, right, exactly, because we don't have corners. Um, <laughs> so I took it. Uh, so I immediately basically had them put sport springs on it, which the which Volkswagen sold sort of official sport springs, which were basically just the European springs that you could get put on the car. And I just I had to so I actually had to pay like six hundred dollars to put the the springs that were meant to be on the car onto the car. Um, but actually, you know, it was pretty good for a few years. And then I bought a new a new mini, the first of the new minis, mm-hmm. Coopers. Um, when they came out and that was something that I was thoroughly excited by at that point, you know, there was something new and different and exciting when it came out, um, especially in the U S where essentially, you, you know, I, I obviously, I mean, you can, you can feel my Europeanness in my choice of cars. I mean, I'm an American who owned a, you know, a sort of uh, a hatchback, uh, two hatchbacks in a row. And in a time when basically they only sold two hatchbacks in the entire United States. So I was the, the person who was buying those. You're um, continuing the family tradition of being a bit like, left field in choices. It really is. It really is. I mean, it, you know, it clearly had a bigger influence on me than I realized. Um, but, but, you know, that's so, so when the mini came out, a car that's sort of fun to drive, not, didn't cost stupid amount um like a gti did at the time in the u.s but i think i think the mini that when that when when that for yeah. that uh the, the first mini came mm-hmm. back as it were mm-hmm. i think that was one of the yeah. few cars that crossed classes yes and it and it crossed genders as well it, it wasn't a car that people went oh that's that's a you know that's a hairdresser's car, or that's a no, you know, this, exactly. It, it exactly. wasn't that. This was this was a car for everybody, and it, it really was. there's not many, even today, but there definitely wasn't yeah. then that were like that. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. I mean, it really had an appeal, and of course, the the marketing and the positioning was fantastic. It, you know, it was really cleverly done, and the the dealerships were set up differently so that it, they treated you differently. Didn't feel like a traditional you know, old fashioned dealership where they, you know, what can I do to get you in this car? I mean, they were, you know, they were creating a buzz and they were helping people and they were all young salespeople and stuff. And a lot of them owned the cars. Actually, I had one of the first hundred in America, actually, um, because I had ordered it because I knew I wanted it. I'd seen it coming on the horizon. was like, I want to have that. Um, And yeah, so I, you know, I ordered it and had it, um, built to my spec and everything watched tracked it as it came across from Southampton on the boat. <laughs> um, and I really loved that car. I mean, it was, you know, it was perfect. It was, it really hit the right thing at the right time 
and it had, you know, it had a sort of feeling, um, all through it and all through the marketing and they would send you things to make you feel special and all that kind of stuff. You know, we're sending, here's a special mini cup holder. Here's a mini, you know, and it would just show up as a gift in the, in, in the mail. And you would just be like, Oh, that's so cool. They really do care about me, you know, but it makes a big difference. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're talking small margins and you're talking about a highly competitive place, that's, that's where things went. Yeah. No, and and, and many, it's not just car. uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's business. Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it, it you know, the it, I think Mini was one of the first to really exploit something that was obviously happening in a broader way with marketing in general. Um, but it, it was great, and I loved the car. Um, I, it had plenty of problems. It was not problem-free. In fact, it was problem-full. But I loved it nonetheless, like a Tesla owner, you know. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, despite you know the fact that six months in, I had to get an entirely new wiring wiring harness put in, um, you know, didn't dampen my enthusiasm somehow. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you know, uh, that was great. And then from there, so the next car that I bought was. Are you still uh, in the U.S. now? Yeah, I was okay. still in the U.S. there. So um, it was a nineteen seventy two Alfa Romeo seventeen fifty GTV. And I bought it impulsively. I was going to say brave choice. On eBay. On eBay. Um, and it was, it was not just a brave choice. It was a stupid choice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I applaud the magnificence of it. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean... But, it, it, but it, from a, it, you know, as a daily driver... No, well, so the thing... It's not. Uh, so so my, my plan was um, that I would keep the Mini and I would, I would have this thing and I would sort of work on it. And, it's like and I'm then, talking to Matteo now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, if the, every designer has to go through this phase. Yeah, you do, you do. So if I manage to get it into a functional state, then maybe I'll sell the Mini, but maybe I don't even need to, you know, kind of thing. Um, as long as I have a place to park it. Um, but it was it, an absolute basket case of a thing i mean it was a nightmare the the person who had owned it before me or actually i think probably the one before him um had done so many things just to keep it running um but was clearly very much more mechanically inclined than i um he had sort of swapped out whole sections of the electricals and things in ways that were completely different so you pull out the the haynes manual and you go this is not at all what i'm looking at you know i don't i don't have any idea where these things are it's not it's not any of the same components that are supposed to be in this part of the of the car (laughs) truly and it was truly that i mean and so you know i was just sort of at a loss and i did not after i bought the car have the cash to sort of give it to somebody to fix it was the intention was that oh well it's running which it was at the time that i bought it um, it's running. So if it runs, I'll be okay. I wanted to fix the body work uh, that I could sort of do a bit more myself. I was good with, good with the Bondo and, and that kind of thing. And I figured I'll, I'll clean up the body myself. You know, my years of model making skills, uh, that I learned in Italy will come in handy. I'll sort of work on those things. I'll work on cleaning up the interior. There's a little bit of a mess and those types of things that I could sort of do. And me- mechanically, as long as it runs, I'll be happy with that. And then I'll get it resprayed at some point. Mm-hmm. And, and, and no exaggeration, I bought a house with, so I, 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 you know, met my future wife and we decided to buy a house and the house had a garage and 
the day we moved in, I drove the Alpha into the garage. And I thought, this is great. I'll have Finally have try to work on it. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> right? Finally have the spot to work on it. This great garage. Drove it into the garage, and it started to sputter. It stopped running, as, and I rolled it into the garage. And it never again ran again. It never <laughs> came back out of the garage. It was like it was just telling me, "I am this home. Is as far this as is my mausoleum." Yeah, this exactly. This is as far as I'm going to go. You will never get me running again. It didn't matter what I did. I could never get it to run. Knew all of the things, you know, in sort of bits and pieces. But there was some sort of massive, some sort of massive problem that I never managed to track down. And didn't have the money or time because I had a new wreck of a house to put together um, at the same time. So it was basically renovating a house. The car got neglected. The car needed more attention than the house did. So it was never going to happen. <laughs> um, and, and that car basically just sat there with some very minor um, fixes to the interior and the body and stuff over the years um, until we moved, until we moved to Europe. And I sold it to a guy who was a an alpha mechanic for sort of a, i don't know half of what i had paid for or something like that good luck Except sir for, yeah yeah so but he 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 had a full shop he was like an actual ah, okay the area that i had sort of that i had taken the car to and he had done estimates on how much it was going to be which was sort of like almost the cost of the car and i was like well i'll do some of this myself and then you know now with all that free time and money i have he has uh, a beautiful example of an Alpha GT that I used to own as a complete basket case mess. But um, yeah, nonetheless, that was the thing. And and in that meantime, so you know, marriage, house, uh, the car thing gets gets pretty muddy. You know, yeah. a, a, a Passat Estate, a an A3. Um, my wife had a Saab 900, which we both sort of did have quite a fondness for. Um, so for a lot of time there, you know, I sold the mini off and we just went through sort of sharing cars. I worked from home most of this time or took the train. So really having cars stopped being a primary thing for And this driving. is when you're in Europe, uh, is it now? No, no, this is still, still in the in, U.S. Still in the U.S., okay. We lived in the city and... You know, um, but I still largely worked from home and took the train in, into town when I needed, you know, for other jobs or, you know, and and, and that meant that um, we really, you know, we've reduced things down to one car mm. instead of having three, as most Americans do. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it kind of went downhill from there. And then when we moved to Europe, it was like, okay, sell, sell the Audi and uh came here and we we, okay. we bought well, be, before you before you go in no you've you've been in america and you've bought european so now you're yeah. in europe i'm presuming you will only buy american mm. no you see because no. <laughs> this whole this whole forbidden fruit thing when you're in america european part. so when so I moved, how could you make a choice you come here now it was terrible it was terrible <laughs> absolutely painful so, you know, there's so many things that you don't get in America that I have, of course, been following because I'm interested in cars and been following all the European media. And, you know, I read car magazine and stuff. I didn't, I didn't read Road and Track. I read car. Um, and Stop teasing me. <laughs> yeah, and, and exactly. That's how I always felt. So then I came here. I was like, so, so what do we get? Now we have all of the options. We have so many choices, right? 
but but of course the reality was that we should have shipped the A3 over. It would have been cheaper than buying a car in the Netherlands because the Dutch put massive taxes on cars, and everything is stupidly expensive. And we didn't realize that when we moved. We moved with incredible incredible speed, um, and not enough speed to have made that decision correctly. So when we started looking at cars, we're like, oh. Oh geez, okay. So I could spend the same money that I did for, uh, you know, an an A3 with leather seats and a 2.0 T engine. I could spend that on a, you know, on a like seven year old Golf mm. or something. And we're like, oh, okay. Well, that's not good. <laughs> um, not to mention, I've just moved to Europe basically on my own dime. I don't have money for uh, the same amount of money that I had when I bought the A3. So, uh, yeah, so I bought the A-Class, um, which actually was brilliant. It was perfect for, for the way we used the car because mm-hmm. we had a kid at that time. So we had a baby fit, you know, the back seat, nice and big, yep. perfect for baby seat. Flexible. Seats down. Yeah, exactly. Flexible. The space inside could do all the things we needed to, but we also lived in the city, you know, in perfect a Dutch city and we needed that size. So having and that- you've got amazing- a slightly raised, uh, raised ride height. Exactly, which gives me control over traffic. Yes, I, I now have the perception of safety, even if it's not the reality. <laughs> exactly what people love. Um, yeah, so th- so that's what we did. And, and it actually it made perfect sense. It was great. Um, and we loved that car. My, my wife loved that car. My daughter loved that car. Um, and believe it or not, so it was red because mm-hmm. my wife wanted a red car. We had never had one and found one. And of course cheaper than others because it was a red a class mm. um and um my, my daughter thought it was lightning mcqueen so there you go <laughs> that'll um, do <laughs> yeah so she called it lightning um and you know so so you know it was it did all the things it needs to even though it was this tiny little hatchback if your daughter thinks it's Light, lightning mcqueen then you're good right yeah. um yeah and my wife was happy with it. I was happy with it. We we really don't drive very much, and we didn't at the time. I mean, sometimes we would sit for over a month at a time without being driven um, when we lived right in the center of town. And uh, then we bought a house a little bit outside of town. And by a little bit, I mean really a little bit, like 700 meters outside of town. <laughs> um, where we had uh, street parking, so a little bit more space. Mm. Uh, but we also house and we needed a little bit more to be able to do things and we decided to start taking longer holidays um and i thought you know really we need a car that can travel long distances across europe because that's what we want to do with it so having an a-class and driving across germany in an a-class is the the most frustrating experience in the world you know it's it's sort of like i'm sure we can get to one 63 kilometers per hour, you know, and you're like, oh God, how slow am I going to be? You know, people just blowing by you in BMW after BMW. Um, so, so I convinced my wife that we should buy, of course, the practical option, an Alpha 159 estate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With all the cup holders. With all the cup holders. Yeah, and, and quite honestly, uh, it was pretty good. Well, okay, uh, I, 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 sorry, I laughed then, but I think it's no, 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 I, know. I think it, it's, it's a, a lovely pretty, looking car. Pretty laughable choice. Um, even I was sort of like, maybe it'll be okay, you know. When I can <laughs> you know, so like, hope over expectation. Sure, it'll be fine, kind of thing. Um, 
you know, and I bought the model that had the, the fewest problems and okay, we thought it seems like a pretty good deal. It looked fantastic. It's navy blue with a brown leather interior oh, that we've got looks near us like literally that. straight out of oh. Ferrari. I mean, it, you know, it's like it couldn't look, it couldn't have looked any better. It was the best looking thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it was absolutely flawless during my ownership time. I cannot vouch for before or after, but <laughs> during the time I owned it, flawless, absolutely never a problem, did not cost me anything except a new set of tires in the two years that I owned it. Um, and did, and did you um, shoot across Europe in it? Yes, we did. We it, traveled Very stylishly, Italy, obviously. but Very stylishly traveled to Italy in it and... Um, you know, enjoyed all of those things. And I would, you know, regularly take sort of jaunts to, we would go to France or Italy or Switzerland or something in it. It was great. The thing that was funny about it is actually it had less space inside than the A-Class. So (laughs) even though the car is sort of an extra meter and a half longer than the A-Class, ultimately you couldn't really get much more stuff in and people were less comfortable inside of it. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's just the three of us. You've got to make these sacrifices. Exactly, exactly. Style. <laughs> but the problem was that my wife hated it. It literally, Ooh. it looked great, but she hated driving it and she hated being in it. It made her sick oh, no. with literally seconds of being in the car. If I just pulled away from a parking space, she'd be like, whoa, slow down. I feel sick. I, I haven't even gotten up to sort of 50 kilometers per hour yet. And you're already saying you feel sick. How is it going to be for the next... 3,500 kilometers. Um, Bad. <laughs> yeah. So it would, it was, and it, and it was sort of like this constant thing, uh, you know, where I was, I was sort of always a bit walking on eggshells trying to not make everyone in the car sick. Um, and I said, well, you know, we'll keep the A class for now because you love that car. And so for, you know, around town and stuff, that makes sense. Mm. Um, the Alpha's pretty terrible around town. Um, actually, it was genuinely, genuinely awful around town. And so we kept the two, which was completely impractical because we were only driving about, I don't know, 50 kilometers a month total. Um, so, so a two-car family where you could possibly so be a half-car family. I would literally take the car out. <laughs> for a drive just to put a few kilometers on it. Cause I was like, it's an alpha. It can't just sit here for as long as it has. The battery twice, may die. Twice, I need to try. twice the battery died in two years, twice the battery <laughs> died from neglect. <laughs> so, yeah. So I said, this is ridiculous, right? You hate the car. You won't drive it. We still own this stupid a class. We're taking up two spaces on the street that we live on, even though we don't ever use the car. And Maybe we should get try to find something that actually does all of the things we need. And we looked at a lot of things, and I still sort of was holding out hope that maybe there's something unique or interesting or amazing or whatever to do all of those things. But ultimately, we ended up with an E91 BMW um, estate uh, touring. Mm-hmm. Um, but I managed to find a German import uh, 330i. So the full 270 horsepower, normally aspirated straight six. Vital for round, round the town. Yes. Yes, absolutely. But the thing about it was, you know, you need that kind of power. You never know when you're going to need to go from 30 to 50 Uh, kilometers per hour, you know, in a really quick jump. Um, 
But actually, the thing about it is that it's so tractable, it's so drivable that whether you're driving it in town or you're blasting down the Autobahn, it literally doesn't seem to care which one you're doing. Whereas the A-Class, you always felt like it was about to explode when you were on the Autobahn, and the Alpha felt like it was about to explode when you drove to the shops in the middle of town, and you were kind of like, what, you know, how is it that they can't manage to put these two things together into one that works? Well, it's good that um, you've combined the positives of both of those together, <laughs> rather than the negatives. <laughs> I'm sure we were close to, to finding something that had all of the negatives, but ultimately it ended up being um, all of the positives. And, and, and really, we've been extremely happy with the car ever since. Still don't put many miles on it. Um, in, in fact, almost absurdly low amount we basically do a blast to italy every summer and then maybe a trip to france or something in between and then otherwise it mostly you know most of the time it just does sort of little short hops of less than a kilometer around town the rest of the time Mm. um we just happen to live in a place where everything is so easy to get around you know bike train bus whatever it's always easier than taking the car almost um so, you know, when my parents come, we have a nice car to pick them up in the airport in. And I'm like, woohoo, I get to drive the car all the way, you know, <laughs> like 23 kilometers to the airport and back, um, you know, and, and that's it. That's like, that's Ooh, my I driving. I lie down now. I've had a long drive. <laughs> I realized, I, you know, I went to the filling station the other day. And I was like, I, I'm looking at the, when was the last time I did this? And I realized it was in February. When we were coming back from a trip to France was the last time I'd been at a filling station. So, I mean, literally been three, you know, two entire months since I had filled the car. No wonder um, my points card isn't filling up. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, you know, so uh, so my perspective on what a car needs to be these days is a bit skewed. Um, and I try to keep that, you know, kind of in perspective. But I also think, you know, again, going back to the thing about perspective, living in a place where a car is not valuable um and and where people don't put a high the dutch also don't put a high value on um on status of a car okay in fact anything it's the opposite they kind of think you're a bit of a if you drive a nice car mm-hmm. um so you know having a place where that is the sort of common factor where people drive Suzuki wagon R's until they die, you know, like I think there's three Suzuki wagon R's on my street, um, about 35 houses, right? There's 35 houses. There's three Suzuki wagon R's from the, you know, from 2003 or something on it, just a, a sort of perspective. And, you know, and I have this 270 horsepower BMW sitting in the middle of it. Like, well, no wonder they think I'm a, um, Okay, well that that is um, that is an interesting. So, so it, it provides an interesting new new perspective that I would not have had otherwise, you know. And I think it also, you know, it, it just goes to show that that where you live very much affects the way you you see cars and you understand cars. And you know, now I've lived in I lived in Switzerland, I've lived in Italy, I've lived in France, I've lived in the Netherlands, the U.S., and and you know, the sort of the accumulated experiences of those different places really changes how you see what a car is or should be. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it really does mean different things to different people, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Oh, well, that was, that's an interesting and um, some brave choices in there. I'll be, yeah. I'll be polite. Yeah. Brave, I think is the way Thanks. to put it. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, w- I want to come back now to uh, design. Okay. 
Um, and I've got a a double-headed question here, um, oh. which is, what do you think makes good design, and uh, is that the same as effective design? Are these different uh, things or the same? Good design and effective design. By effective design, do you mean things that sell well, or do you mean things that? Well, how how would you how like? would you define uh, <laughs> well, good, and how would you define effective? For me, good design has two sides to it, and and actually, when we're talking car design, I think there's two sides to car design anyway, in my mind. Okay. Car design, I essentially split up into styling, which is you know what some companies actually still call design and and what i would consider proper design which is solving problems okay through create you know creative solutions yeah all right um and so what is good for me is um ideally a combination of those things which is to say that it it solves a problem it's cleverly done it does what people need it to do but that it's also executed in a way that it looks good, that it works for what it's supposed to do, that it, you know, works for the brand, that it does those kinds of things. Because it, there's, there's room for styling in design, I guess. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. sort of like good design is a combination of those things for me. It's an aesthetic thing because the aesthetics are part of the the brand, the marketing, how people perceive them, the message it sends, all of those things are um, come largely out of the aesthetics of the thing, not necessarily out of the the size of it or the packaging or something. But the size of it and the packaging and the cleverness and all of those kinds of things to me are as important, if not more. Um, and it depends on you know where you are in things. But the fact is, you know, when you look at the A class, I would say, is good design. The A class is great design because it was so cleverly done. The engineering, the designers, the packaging, all working together to make something brilliant in so many ways. The fact that it didn't look great was a result of that. There's really not much you can do with that awkward shape. Was that was that a, a, a classic um, form follows function? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so to me in that, in that sense, that car was brilliant, but it didn't sell as well because it wasn't cool. Mm. Right. Um, and, and that side of things is where the sort of styling aspect of things you say, Oh, well, if that, if they had managed to find a way to combine that with good looks or something that fit more the Mercedes brand, then perhaps we would still have a clever a class instead of the hideous thing that they currently sell as an A-class. <laughs> but I, I would also say that that was the car that had to change. It had a, it had a, another role where it had to change people's perception. Yeah. A, yeah. And that, I, I would possibly argue, and it didn't matter what it would look like to say you had the small Mercedes. Well, was going I to think be a difficult sell for anyone. Uh, of course, but I mean, actually, it sold. It sold quite well when it first came out. I mean, for years, it sold quite well. I oh, mean, yeah, it was never yeah. top seller, but it did sell quite well. Um, but I think, you know, Mercedes 
at the time was a very engineering-driven company, and that's an engineering-driven designer from a sort of core solutions kind of way um, car. And I and I absolutely admire the fact that it did those things. Um, the fact that it didn't maybe feel like a Mercedes, people didn't drive like one, uh, didn't quite look like one. It didn't have the gravitas of a Mercedes. You know, it's like, well, okay, well, that's because it shaped like a, you know, the front end of a, I don't know, vacuum cleaner or something. Mm. But, you know, okay, so it has this sort of awkward base, but but at the same time, it was good design and it did a lot of things for a lot of people, but it missed that little piece that would make it a complete good design in a way. Mm. Um, so, you know, now you have, I think, uh, uh, now there's been a shift towards styling, replacing design. Um, Mercedes being an excellent example of that. I mean, the, the current A-Class is sort of less good in all of the ways than the old A-Class, but people love it because it looks cool, apparently. I mean, I don't I don't think it does, but I think it's mess, but uh, people think it looks cool, right? So it's brought in younger buyers who wanted uh, an overpriced car that had a Mercedes badge and looked kind of like a Mercedes, and that's worked for them. And... Um, cleverness was not what people wanted at that end of the market you know because it's the aspiration isn't it exactly it's the aspiration so they're selling the aspiration so a car that that really basically entirely revolves around styling and you know you could look at uh, lexus and things you know same kind of thing where they're they're going over the top with styling to try to just pull people in mechanically it's not exceptional. It's not the point. It's not solving any problems. I mean, no Lexus is solving a problem at the moment. They are all just copying where people are buying premium cars and like, this is exactly the dimensions it needs to be. They've benchmarked the BMWs and Mercedes and they said, this word needs to be, now make it look crazy and it'll sell. Mm. And that's fine. That, that has a purpose. Um, but I don't well, have there, as much many respect for that, I guess. Well, are there many that are solving a, a, a problem, really, do you think, with many of their models? Well, well, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for example, I mean, solving a problem in in some ways, I mean, you have, for example, Citroen, who are, who are now doing, you know, they're doing these sort of cleverly decontented cars that use the space cleverly, you know, the, the, um, the Cactus, mm. the new C3, um, you know, they're hitting they're hitting a market where things exist, but they're, they're saying, okay, well, you know, they're going to put these air bumps on the side because it's practical for a car in that, but they make it look good too. You yeah, know, it looks yeah. kind of cool. It, it looks clever. And they also ride a little bit higher. So you get a bit of that crossover thing, even though it's really just a C3, it's just a small hatchback. It's not that different, but it rides that little bit higher and it gives it a bit of that crossover feel. They put the black cladding on the wheel arches and that kind of I thing. I always does. I'm, um, I'm a big fan of black cladding uh, on stuff. So, so, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, the thing is that I think, you know, those, it, it's solving a when I say a problem, it's not solving a big problem. It's not solving the world, world's problems. But what it's doing is looking at the rather than just doing the obvious next thing, it's stepping back, thinking about it, and saying, "How can we do this in a different, better, more interesting way mm-hmm. that solves a problem for a buyer, perhaps in that they want a small crossover, but they don't want one." Of you know this size, this size. I mean, Skoda, you could kind of argue, does a similar thing. They break the segment sizes. You know, they they make a car cheaper by building it on the platform below, but they make it the size of the smallest car of the segment above. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, I get, <laughs> I get what you mean. Um, so essentially, but you know, uh, I think they're being now you know, hamstrung. So 
Yes. Well, they've they've now uh, they're they're sort of moving off that the the cleverness thing is moving off that. But for a long time, Skoda did a very similar thing. I think in that they they fit these sort of niches and things that that just fit people's needs, real yeah. needs. They yeah. they were all liftbacks and and they all were sort of a size maybe different than what other companies were offering, which for a lot of people makes sense. You need the little bit bigger hatchback. So here's the repeat. You need the little bit bigger. Um, um, well, the classic you know, was the Octavia was up against yeah, the Focus and the Astra, and it was bigger than that, or it definitely yeah, felt that but, way. But but the thing about them is they're bigger, but they're built on the platform yeah. of the smaller car. So they're built on the same basic equivalent platform. But for a lot of people, they just need that little bit more space, that little bit more size, the ability to get a little bit more in the boot. And the boot's cleverly done by having a lift back instead of a regular boot, but it looks like it has a boot, so it doesn't aesthetically look different than a than a saloon. So you kind of have, you know, it, it's doing, it's it's got a role. It has a very specific role that it plays, and I think that's clever. And I think the Kodiak is going to fit a very similar niche if, um, you know, in the SUV space, the sort of not gigantic seven-seat SUV is going to be massively popular. I, I think it's a brilliant uh, idea. Uh, yeah, and I, I think, think the price point is superb. Um, yeah. to Nick from the rest of their range uh, is superb uh, but I worry for them now because I see other cars yes. come out in their range and their individuality appears to have been removed from them yeah absolutely and, and which you know, is this, a, which is a VW group issue but yes and that, and that is exactly um, you know and that's where the sort of conversation goes all going all the way back to the beginning of the sort of a lot of designers are just as disappointed with the results mm. as as we are when they come out it's those kinds of decisions. I mean, obviously, you know, I would bet internally the designers think the next Yeti should feel like a Yeti. Mm. And yet I would, it, it seems from everything we're seeing that it will just be essentially, uh, you know, a, a, a Tiguan, Skoda eyes Tiguan, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Um, which seems like, it, which just seems to me like a terrible move. So they've gone for volume over the sort of brand the meaningful brand thing that it had before, which was that they sort of were more clever than others. And well, it just thing. seems to that, well, obviously, uh, hopefully there are clever people in VW thinking about this, but it just, just not to massively pick on them, but it just looks like um, they're going to cannibalize their own sales. Yes. Because, yeah. you know, it, it will, it will then definitely only come down to badge snobbery. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the other thing about Volkswagen, I mean, I think, you know, obviously, They've been very late to the SUV game in a, in a real way. You know, in America, they've desperately been lacking a full-size SUV and that kind of thing. Um, and they just never quite seem to get it. And now that they've gotten it, I feel like they just they want to just have as many options as they can so that everybody will buy one, and then they'll probably kill them off, something like that. It, it seems a bit odd to just saturate the market with your own competitive things that are all exactly the same, just with different badges on them, essentially. Yeah, it is. Um, and I know, well, I'm, I know, I am presuming that a lot of it is cost-cutting exercises. Yes. Because of the, sure. the their own self-inflicted wounds. So, yeah. um, but you just sort of think, well, is that really going to solve your problem, or is that just going to make it worse? Because if you yeah, don't well, sell, what's the point in cutting a cost? <laughs> but but here's the thing with with this situation. Again, we're living, we're seeing what Volkswagen's doing now, but they're already one or two generations out. Yeah. So without knowing what their product planners have planned, 
Well, they're, they're, they're obviously desperately scrambling behind the scenes as well because suddenly they're going to be an electrified company, which, exactly. which was exactly. not on the on the plans exactly. a couple of years ago until so, it all so went horribly exactly wrong. So how exactly does that play? They clearly can't make all the models they have now and all the electrified models. Something's going to give, so things are going to be shifting. Mm. And that's going to happen around the market. Everybody's going to be doing that. Think some things are going to die. You know, it's probably going to be coupes and convertibles. Um you know, that type of thing. Because, Good, because I have a family. I don't want people having fun. Well, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, the fact <laughs> is they just don't sell very many. Um, it, it's much more of a, of a you know, halo effect that they can have those mm. cars. And, you know, if the thing that people want now is practical, but it's not going to last. And people are going to want fun again, probably, yeah, yeah. you know. Well, there, there'll be a backlash. There's a, there's a, it always seems to go swing to extremes, doesn't it? It does. So, it, it um, does. Yeah, so okay, you, you've mentioned once or twice um, in this chat that uh, sometimes you come across uh, or can be perceived as coming across as a bit harsh on people on Twitter or, or designs. Um, so what what really what really gets you goat then when you see design? What when you see a design? What's the sort of thing that annoys you? Um. Well. I think the thing that annoys me the most or that, that gets me going the most quickly is the um, just poor execution or poor resolution of things that are, that are, that are clearly trying to be done, um, which just to me comes across as rushed or unprofessional. Um, you know, the, the Volkswagen cross uh, that they have unveiled in in shanghai is the example of that um there's basically nothing right about it you know uh, the proportions are awkward the detailing is awkward the surfaces are awkward it doesn't cast clean reflections all the things that we've been trained to do as car designers have been thrown out the window to make this thing and it comes across as just being a sort of rushed mess um now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I, I would assume that it probably is. When you look at the Audi, um, you know their current lineup is a full of is full of cars that that look a mess, that have all of these same problems. So it's clearly a sort of systemic thing. In and and you're, you're not even talking about the photocopier and large and no, 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 exactly. <laughs> no, no, we haven't so even that, gone there. That's not addressing that. <laughs> I mean, you know, Audi had a system that they stuck to a little too firmly and it was a bit, you know, too photocopy, too Russian doll. But the bigger problem that I have is when they went away from that, it wasn't with a good rationality. It was more like, we're just going to add a squiggle here and a swoosh here and we're going to slice a little bit off this thing. But without, I mean, you know, we're kind of taught as designers to appreciate, European designers anyway, you know, clean sort of form follows function. Aesthetic reasoning, really, you know, which is essentially that you can do a, a you can do a cut that goes across the whole car, like a BMW has the this sort of feature line that goes up the whole side of the car, um, and that has an aesthetic function, which is to draw your eye across the car. It's not just there because mm. um, all of the things that we're seeing at the bottom of the car now, where you have sort of cuts and dimples and things of, you know, along the sill between the wheels and yes. how the wheel arches are treated. Those are actually done because cars are getting thicker 
and you need to minimize how thick they look. And so people are playing with how you make the reflections sort of trick the eye so that they don't look so heavy or so um, awkward, maybe, in some ways, you know, when you have these sort of slightly odd shapes that are now coming through crossovers and things. But when you start to go away from those things and you start doing like, I am just going to do this thing that does this because it looks cool, mm. then you start to lose me. Now, if it looks really cool and you're like, okay, they, that absolutely worked, you can get over, you can get past it, but it rarely does. You, you can see through those little tricks and it's almost like somebody's just going, you know, it's, it feels like there's no editing between uh, the sketch phase and the production phase, you know, like yeah. it's being rushed through and nobody's just stepping back and saying, why, why is that doing that? Why is there like seven slashes across the back fender for no apparent reason? You know, and, and I don't think that that's necessarily something that, um, you know, it, it's whether it's a shift in mentality or whether it's, um, a sort of more is better thing that's happening right now. I'm not quite sure, but when you look at Audi, clearly everybody acknowledged it because they fired Egger, you know, I don't know, two years into his, into his term as chief designer. Um, so he did all of these things that we hate and the sales dropped and the image of the brand has dropped and immediately they got rid of him and put somebody else there to, to establish a new aesthetic. And now when you look at the Audi that they showed in Shanghai, okay, it still has this ridiculously aggressive gulping face that I don't understand. Well, but all the premiums are yeah, angry, well, and, shouty. I mean, you, yeah. you, you mentioned Nexus before. I mean, that's got the predator face on it. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know. You, you... So, so that is definitely a thing, but I think it's it's almost like everybody's just one upping each other, and now it's gotten to a point where it's so ridiculous that you know it's like we, who we can't do it with BHP anymore. So we do it with the... <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, there is a bit of that, and it, I mean, I you know, and I know that part of this comes from um, China as being a big appeal for these, and that Chinese do quite like that. Asian countries, Korea as well, like a sort of powerful, aggressive face on a car. But I do think there's too much, and I do think that there's a point where it just goes over. But of course, it's going to take a, a generation of design to get back to more conservative, right? Because mm -hmm. they can't just make that go away. Um, so you know, you look at these things, and it has this this new Audi has this face, but actually, the rest of it's quite uh, quite a bit better resolved than the Volkswagen or the Skoda that are quite similar things, sort of weird, thick electric crossover. Or coupe. I have no idea what what you would call the typology that they are. Know, but we've got, to, we've got to come up with some new niches. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some new um, acronyms. <laughs> um, so you know, but it, it, it they're essentially crossover. Four, you know, are they four door coupe crossover? I don't know, but either way, the Audi at least is sort of well executed from surfaces and reflections and all the things that you want. It, it looks again a. Audi-ish in that way, and that it has a calmness, a cleanness, a purposefulness to the the way it's designed. Um, the Volkswagen looks like someone just woke up, drew a sketch, and they milled a model from it, and they took it, and they were like, "Wait, wait, wait! No, wait! Um, we forgot to do any of the refinement part of the process, you know." Um, and and the Skoda is a bit the same. They just 
copy and paste the Skoda aesthetic onto this shape that doesn't quite work without... It just gives a feeling of panic behind the scenes. It does. It does. And I think, you know, it's this lack of care in the execution that is the thing that usually bothers me the most. Um, You'll hear me talk a lot about surfacing and volumes and that kind of thing. And those are designery words for, you know, a a clean shape and, you know, uh, clean edges and those types of things. Mm. I I keep criticizing the Lexus LS, which a lot of people really like. Um, But when I look at it, when I look at the actual car in Geneva or in Detroit, you know, it has so many different things happening on top of one another and they actually conflict and but they left them like that and they left it like that and you can sort of see like the 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 window the chrome along the bottom of the window line the dlo kind of bumps up like three times as it goes across the back and and when you look closely it's because there's actually like three different surfaces touching each other all at the same place but i think that's a there's a definite uh japanese fashion at the moment for doing lots of lots of styling obviously is uh, but but i still think that there's a place you know when you look at mazda or you look at not sure i want to use infinity as a reference but you know infinity is treating those things infinity's gone almost too bland with theirs they have lots of styling but then it doesn't sort of end with anything dramatic Mm. um well, but, but I think the Mazda, think the Mazda do, design language could, at the moment, their models, yeah, well, I mean, I think is the Mazda a particularly does. attractive range. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and I think that it ha- it's very expressive and it's very, you know, moving. I don't love all of the Mazdas. I think I have problems with them. And Matteo and I go back and forth on the, on the <laughs> MX-5 because it, it, there's a couple of things that drive me crazy on it. But, don't break a man's heart. He's going to marry his soon. Yeah, exactly. But... <laughs> <laughs> But as as a as a lineup, as a general aesthetic, I think it's great. I have niggles with small bits, or you know, there's things that sort of drive, sort of bother me about proportions or how low the bonnets go and things. That, but that's personal, and I understand that's personal preference. That's not sort of I don't consider Mazda's design fundamentally flawed, whereas I do think the Lexus LS is sort of fundamentally flawed. They're, you can see that they're trying to be busy, and I'm okay with them trying to be busy if they're sort of still resolving it in some way. If they're still taking that as far as it can go and then taking that little step back just to say, and now we'll make this even better by bringing it all together. To me, it doesn't look like one design. It looks like four smashed together. And in the places where they smashed them together, you actually see the the weird bumps and things, you know? Mm. So to me, that's how it kind of looks. It's almost like they brought multiple digital models together and they just, where they, where they have conflicts, they leave them. Um, Okay. And that kind of thing drives me crazy, you know, because there's really no excuse for it. There's really no reason to have that. And it probably actually even makes their manufacturing more expensive. It makes the, you know, and sort of like, so, you know, if you just took a step back, it doesn't have to be so over the top. Yeah. So, um, I, no, I, I've, I've said this a, a few times um, on, on the shows and uh, on Twitter. I noticed that there is a distinct difference between the designer corner of Twitter yeah. and Joe Public. Yeah. Now, yeah, well, of course. I mean, we're, we're trained to see things a certain way, right? I mean, yeah. we're, we're so, taught and trained and... But when you see the public opinion being 
overwhelmingly positive on a model. And I then am looking at the design of people having a conversation and they're sort of picking apart. And Okay, great. I mean, I'm getting an education because I'm going, oh, I never thought of that. Oh, I didn't realize that yeah. that was an et cetera, et cetera. But when, when you guys look across and you see people just go, I love it. It looks fantastic. But, uh, you know, and, yeah. and obviously we're not using the same language as, as you yeah. use. We're not looking at the same details. We are, um, you know, it's much more of a, an emotional first gut reaction rather than a, a trained um, analytical clinical way of looking yeah, at exactly. something. Yes. Um, do you sometimes sit there and just go, fair enough, <laughs> off you go and enjoy it? Or... Do you sometimes think, wow, if only you, you knew what we knew? Yeah, I mean, I'm past thinking, oh, if only you knew what we knew, because I know, you know, that's that's not really a fair assessment. I mean, people, you can't expect people to to do that. I mean, it, there's a there's a, you know, as much as maybe I'd love for people to all be enlightened on design, it's not going to happen anytime soon. And I don't expect it to <laughs> people. Um, having an emotional response is fine and good. Um, if it hits that resonance with people, that's good. I think, however, there tends to be the, um, Joe public tends to respond positively to whatever is new because it's new Mm. to them. Yeah. Shiny thing syndrome. Yes. But Will that thing last? Will it have a lasting effect? Or will it start to look silly the way we see it from the beginning? Will it start to look awkward or bad as people see them around more? I mean, that's the thing that I think with Audi, I was extremely critical of all the recent Audis, basically, Q2, Q5, even the A4, you know, whatever. The A5, I think, is terrible, what they've done to it. I mean, it was my favorite car the A5. Mm. And I think the new one, despite being very slightly changed, is awful. I hate it. You know, it's like, so there's such a minor thing. Um, well, even I can't get it, beyond the ridges on the bonnet. Well, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's just lots of weird decisions and it has a very squished nose. It's very low and it's kind of weird and has this uh, cut under the edge that, that isn't even as the car goes back and it makes it look, you know, uh, somehow not quite as premium. Well, you know, I, I saw that as soon as I looked at it. Oh, kind of ugly. People, you know, the regular Joe Public type person looks at it, goes, "Oh, look at that! It looks fresh and new." And but, but then you realize Audi sales are off. Mm. Well, that's not a coincidence, because as people go and they start to look at them, they get the impression with time. I think that that designers tend to get right off the bat. Now, sometimes we definitely get it wrong. Sometimes people really love something that we all really hate, you know, or that we sort of, there's a consensus, this is terrible. The the Julia, um, you know, there's a consensus among car designers that is not a good design, pretty much. Mm. But people love it. Okay, you've mentioned that car. I wasn't, I wasn't going to mention <laughs> them, but you've mentioned that car. Is yeah. that because that has... Because uh, I think one of the things I, I saw being mentioned was it's been designed, or it looks like it's been designed for now. And it's yeah. come out now and everyone's gone, that's great now. And this sort of ties into what you were saying before. But in four or five years time, will people still want to go to a showroom and go, I, I, I want that because that still looks fresh? 
Yeah, it's not going to look fresh in five years. I don't I mean, think. I, I don't quite, think it looks I fresh now. I quite like the aggressive look and everything. Yeah, yeah, and I don't have a problem with the aggressive look. Um, but I, I think you know when you strip it back, and you know it's not the quadrifolio version. Um, you realize it's actually really quite bland. It's not really very aggressive. It's it's essentially a sort of mishmash of. Um, things that you see all around the other premium brands combined together into something that's probably, you know, less good than all of the other ones. You know, it's, it has bits of three series. It has bits of a four it has bits of Mercedes and they're all combined into something that's not quite as good as any one of those in their on their own. Mm. But then you, you throw that Alfa Romeo grill on it and everybody lets it well, go. Yeah, you know? I mean, that's, that, it, is a, you, that is and, a problem. And it? they only ever show it in quadrifolio as a quadrifolio and they only ever show it on, in red on 20-inch wheels. And when you see them on the road in silver with the sort of base wheels and things, you're going to start to go, that thing is not aging very well. You know, mm-hmm. it's sort of, sort of pudgy, has this weird squished in face and, you know, it just actually isn't, as exciting as it looks when you see it being power slidden by Chris Harris, yes, you well, know, yeah. on top gear, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm like the ultimate Alfista, you know, I'm, I'm only critical because I love it, you know, and it's like, I only, mm. because I know what is capable of being done with that brand and with that platform, uh, because they've create, you know, they've used this rear wheel drive platform and somehow they've managed to make it n- do something that I think will not age well. And I think an Alfa Romeo, if anything, should age well. Mm. Um, that's a part of the classicism. If you're going to go with the soft curves and things, they need to be done in a certain way for them to age well. Otherwise, they will look... Yeah, I mean, I guess saying they look of the moment, but I'm not even sure. I think they look of the three years ago or four years ago mm. because I think even at the moment, it, those things are moving on. Well, now and, everything's a slash and a swoop, isn't it? Now, but. yeah, yeah, and and I feel like it's a bit missed because they could have had something that was quite unique and quite modern in a really Alfa Romeo-y kind of way, and instead it looks quite derivative and kind of soft. And I think it's going to look kind of mushy and fat and and not great in five years when you see them around. I mean, a Quadrifoglio red with twenty-inch wheels would probably still be an appealing thing and i can actually see myself potentially buying one if they still are running in five years um but i would do it sort of against my you know against my better judgment on the design it frustrates me that it's that it's not better because i know it could have been and if you look at the sketches that were created in the development of that car you can see that they wanted to do more they didn't what happened in the process that got them away from what I would consider the perfect design, which they have in the development sketches. Something went wrong in the process to get to the point that it did. Mm. Well, I think this is a good time because I don't, I don't want to push up your blood pressure too much and keep, <laughs> and keep poking the bear about what's, what's bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but to move on to the quickfire questions. Yeah. Um, well, okay, the first two may not actually... Well, the first one would be all right, but the second question is probably not going to be good for your blood pressure. But let, let's crack on. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I will start with the, uh, the the first, the typical first one, which is what currently excites you about the motoring world. Um, I I think this is going to come as a surprise. I think that autonomous driving excites me about the motoring world. Okay, why is that? Well, because I think that 
it's going to make people have to think differently. And I think recent design has been largely fallen on the end of what I would consider complacency and styling and autonomous brings good design back into focus because of really? how it has to be. Uh, have we yes. seen any yet? No. Okay, good. That's all right then. I'm, I'm glad I'm not miles <laughs> off then because I stuff that's been thrown out as concepts, I'm, no, I'm and, and, completely and, underwhelmed by. And the thing about it is, it's not it's not necessarily that they're going to be exciting in the same way that a car, you know, a, a, a Julia Quadrifoglio is going oh, to be no, exciting. Oh no, absolutely not. No, no. And, and the fact that there might be boxes on wheels is to me just as exciting because I want to see what somebody can do with that. Yeah, Nobody but like has one shown that us makes what, me want to try and get exciting. in it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, you think about a a box on wheels, right? And you think about uh, uh, the Queen's carriage. Mm. (laughs) And you think, well, you know, that was a box on wheels. But clearly, uh, it's not just a box on wheels. There are things that can happen with a cabin without a sort of need to be aggressively sporty or sleek in the same kind of way that what we're used to. Mm. And there's massive opportunities on the interior to do exciting things. Again, I don't think anyone's managed this yet. Well, I think it. I think it gives the I chance to change the what, what yes. try, you know, what going in a car will be, what what the yeah, experience yeah. will be. I think it really Absolutely. gives us an opportunity to to shake that up and completely change what. I mean, what you were saying is completely change what the perception is for yeah. as a user. Yeah, and that's what we'll and, be. We'll be users. And I think, and I think it also has. You know, it'll have a big impact on how we live where we live, potentially, what cities are like, traffic, um, how we get places. Um, and to me, that's exciting because that's part of car. You know, it's not, um, you know, and I think in some ways it'll actually, there will be a move towards the, uh, like, enthusiast style cars that fit the niche for people who want to still enjoy driving in a way that maybe... And now enthusiast cars are have to be kind of partly mainstream, so they don't completely fit. You know, you, you have your caterums or whatever, but it's not really in any way something that's accessible for most of us. Mm. Um, but if you sort of use a shared driving pod during the week, if you still have the money to buy a car, could you not own a sort of caterum-y type thing? Maybe different, maybe electric, maybe whatever, but that you can take out to maybe closed type roads where you can drive as fast as you want. I, I can certainly see that as being an option, mm. you know, um, or that autonomous capabilities will add a level of safety to, to enthusiast driving that we're, we don't quite get yet. What could it do? What could it, you know, help us with? Mm-hmm. Um, if the car told you you were about to crash, but didn't necessarily do something about it, does that, you know, I mean, th- it's something that might happen. You know, could you have the the things in there, but not let it take over? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think all of those things excite me because it's so new and different and so far from what we know. And it can also upset the balance, which I think is always good for any industry. When when you know the car makers are now so just going through the motions, it feels like these days, and just trying to sort of maximize profits in the way that you know. 
um, I, I think getting letting them get in sh- get shaken up is not a bad thing. That's an interesting answer. I like that. Um, so then, uh, well, the opposite to that, what currently worries you about the matching world? <laughs> um, what what I think what currently worries me, which is, I guess partly in the answer there, is the, is the sort of complacency of the car companies. Um, and I guess you could also say, in some ways, autonomous driving is also my answer to what worries me because. Um, because I don't feel like anyone's cracked this sort of next step yet. And it feels like it's coming quite quickly. Um, and I know some people think it's coming more quickly than others. I'm not sure. I think it's coming quite quickly in a way that will shock some people. Um, but I, I, I guess what I'm worried about is that the, Everyone sort of seems excited to see these startups fail. Let it go, Faraday Future, whatever. Yeah, Tesla, there, is a, there is a glee Apple, in the media, isn't there? At the Google, moment. you know, Google. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of a oh, we told you so kind of thing. But actually, to me, having all of these new things, these companies that are pushing electrification and, and autonomous as the sort of thing that makes them different as their as their USP. If they all fail, then there's a chance that it's all just going to be like crossover all the things, and all you're going to get is a world full of bland lookalike crossovers because everybody goes back to being complacent and just like, oh well, you know, we're still selling them, so we might as well. Well, I mean, I've said this before on the the news show quite a few times that whilst I don't agree with some of Tesla's way it acts as a business and as a company um i think it's vitally important that they are successful because the public perception because because tesla have done a fantastic job of of getting the public's attention yeah um that if if they don't succeed in the electrification and now with their um their drive for autonomous people will turn around and go well if tesla can't do it no one can and that yeah. knocks everything back years. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I think I think that's exactly you know. I mean, there's there's a lot. What Tesla has done is sort of light a fire under the the big companies, mm. and if they fail or they have problems, then it allows everybody else to sit back and just wait and say, "We're going to just wait and see what happens," and not actively try to fix the problems or try to make things better. Yeah. And you know that that's what worries me because these companies are massive and you know obviously the implications are massive and it's not like I want to see them go under and I want to see lots of people get up, you know, be put out of work or anything like that. What I want to see is these companies do better because I think a lot of them could. I mean, you look at FCA and all of the brands at FCA I think could do better. And, you know, a lot of people blame that on Marchione. I think he's largely to blame probably for that, but I don't, I don't know for sure. But the fact is there's, you know, it's a company with years of baggage mm. that it carries around. And without that sort of fire lit underneath it, it doesn't have a reason to get rid of the baggage and move on. It doesn't have a reason to dump a brand and move on. It doesn't have a re- And I don't like seeing brands get lost, but it's part of the process. You know, a new brand is born and one's going to get lost. I mean, they can't all share, you know, there's not, not that many new 
new people, you know, that many more people buying cars that you can sort of lose, um, or that you can gain three new brands and not lose at least one or two, you know, and, and, and it's that kind of thing that I think, um, you know, I'm excited because I'm excited to see how new companies, new approaches can do things differently. I agree with you on Tesla. They don't do everything right. Their quality is awful by all standards, I think. Um, you know, but the ability to generate excitement and the passion, like I said, with the mini, when you get the right tone and you get the right thing and the, and the car itself gives you a certain feeling, people connect with that on a different level. And that's important. And I think it's something that the other car makers maybe, you know, forget sometimes Mm -hmm. in their sort of just drive for volume domination. Yeah. Okay, next question then. Uh, what has been your favorite car to drive and why was that? Well, it's got to be that Alpha. <laughs> not the last drive. <laughs> no, not the last one. No, the, the, the GTV. I mean, I it, it, here's a confession for you, uh, exclusive to uh, Rearview. I do not actually drive very many cars and do not have an extensive car driving history. It's one of those sort of weird uh, things that because I drive so little in my everyday life, I actually have very little um, exposure or reason to drive a lot of cars. And, you know, um, other people, you know, you have these journalists who are driving a different car every week. You have lots of people who drive, you know, huge car history because they've driven a lot of miles and they have a garage where they have three extra cars and a couple up on blocks in the in the yard or something um but you know i haven't ever had that sort of circumstance where i where i had that opportunity so i don't really have that many cars it's like i i've never driven i've never driven a porsche Mm. and i've never driven a supercar or anything of the sort you know i've driven in a couple ferraris i've driven you know in porsches but i've never actually driven one i don't know what that experience is like but for me that alpha the thing that i loved about it was that it was so visceral um it was so tiny that even me who's a fairly diminutive gentleman um you know i felt like i was surrounded by the thing like it sort of wrapped around me almost you know Mm. um and you get in and you just felt part of the car as soon as it you know it sounded great it looked fantastic obviously um but when you were driving it you felt absolutely utterly connected to the thing in a way that i've never before or since felt in a car i mean just you could you could drive over a a pound coin and feel it you know through the steering (laughs) i mean you know honestly it was amazing what you know you 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 just felt everything and and it could hold on to corners in a way that uh that a bigger heavier car can't and it made me just appreciate how much I love. I mean, I'm a huge fan of lightweight, small tired cars, um, which, you know, which is why I'm often at odds with most people who just want more power, bigger tires, heavier thing. And it's like, I would rather have an inline three on bike tires <laughs> than, you know, whatever. I mean, and, and just be able to enjoy it in the real world situation. Cause that was the thing about the, album. it wasn't fast. I mean, it was quick. You know, especially for a car of its age, um, but 
but it wasn't fast. You couldn't go fast, but you always felt excited. You know, even if you're just driving it just slowly down the road, you, you, you felt this sort of, this visceral thing, this connection, the sound, the feeling, the smell was amazing. Okay. So So what has been your least favorite car to drive? And why was that? That would probably have to be a Yaris hybrid, which I had as an unfortunate hire car um, when I was on a client visit about a couple of years ago. And um, it was just awful. I, I, I don't know what else to say, but it was just the worst thing I'd ever driven. It was it was the most unappealing. It, so it was soft and floaty and non-communicative. But also, at the same time, I, it nearly killed me because I was on a French motorway. And there was a little bit of traffic coming up, but I was nearing my exit. So I very gently touched the brakes, which it took as panic stop. <laughs> Immediately... <laughs> put on the full sort of extra braking power and and literally screeched to a halt in the middle of a French motorway when all I was trying to do was sort of dab the brakes for an exit on-ramp coming up or an off-ramp coming up. And, and you know, and, and Sam, who was in the car with me, just looked at me like, Jesus, what was that for? And I said, and I was like, I didn't do it. The car did. It's not my fault. I just, I literally touched the brake so gently. Just that little tiny bit more pressure than I guess it thought. It thought, well, he's panic stopping because he's going fast and he's slowing down. Therefore, <laughs> let's apply, apply full brakes with a little bit of hybrid regen, I guess. And it was sort of like, you know, um, it, miserable. And it was ugly too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to a happier topic then. Uh, what car <laughs> would you like to own next? Oh, boy, that is a tough question what car would i like to own next is the most painful thing you can ask a designer um (laughs) does he go classic does he go now oh yeah what's he doing so i think you know i am extremely happy with the bmw Mm -hmm. so i'm going to answer with the classic that i have been searching for um for a while now which i which which will cause laughter um it is a fiat 131 mirafiori okay um you know classic styling genius right i mean box wheels done kind of thing um no, but uh, so there's a bit of a backstory there, which is actually that my daughter is named Mira Fiori. Um, and um, my wife has basically said that I am allowed to buy a Fiat Mira Fiori. I have lots of old alphas and Fiats that I would probably buy if I were on my own and didn't have to respond to anybody. But <laughs> she said, you know what? We can have a car that has Mira Fiori on the back. And they are cool. I mean, the interiors of them are amazing, like orange velour and stuff. I mean, truly some tremendous stuff. So so I think that's what I would like to own next. I'm, I'm working on buying myself a garage space here so that I might be able to uh, slide an old Fiat into it at some well, point. Well, hopefully you're, when, you, when you get both the garage space yeah. and the uh, 131, that... Um, your success is better than the last time you put an Italian yeah, exactly. in a carriage. Well, 
luckily this time I think I have a little bit more money. So if it, you know if it does need work, I can actually like spend that money on getting it fixed rather than just <laughs> letting it rot in the garage until I sell the house and like take it with it. Uh, I can, uh, I can fix this up. It's no problem. I, I'm sure I can take care of this. No problem. Everybody, Fiat's are easy to fix, right? <laughs> No, I like that. That's a nice choice, that. I do like that one. Yeah. Okay, then, so what's your favourite road to drive on? Ah, gosh, I don't really drive on roads much. Um, I mean, the thing is that, honestly, I really never drive for fun anymore. Um, Not many of us do. do Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I have friends, you know, live in Yorkshire and they go to the downs and stuff i don't get to do that you know i don't have that kind of option i don't get to go go at the weekend to to wales and you know rocket around great back roads or anything like that i mean the netherlands like if there's a if there's a stretch of rural road more than about 500 meters long they put speed humps on it so you can't even you can't even enjoy just a straight kilometer stretch of road without hitting something that's going to either take your picture and give you a massive fine or hit a speed hump and take off um so these days the 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 most fun road uh, my favorite road is probably there's a motorway down the italian coast that we take to to where we holiday in italy and that is a lot of fun because you can go very fast and it is very windy and um there aren't many police there so you can sort of enjoy yourself fairly guilt-free um and in the bmw it's a lot of fun of course you know stretches of autobahn up near the netherlands are actually quite fun too because stretching the legs of a car designed specifically to do that thing is always a lot of fun too you know so those two okay hard to decide specifically okay that's that's good um what has been the most pointless optional extra you've experienced Hmm. Well, because I rarely own or use cars and I really almost never buy them new, um, I think the one, and this is an ironic one because it's like, basically it's been the most pointless one and I think it's going to become the most essential one, is voice control. Okay. My Alpha had voice control and it couldn't do anything. I mean, it was like, (laughs) didn't matter you know, I went through all the effort of putting the English version, which is really a pain, you know, <laughs> like the hassle of putting the English version of the Alfa Romeo infotainment system is just a nightmare because they have like these weird things that you have to do on a USB stick and you stick it in the thing, but then you have to do a special sequence of button pushing and then you hope it works. And if it doesn't, then you might have to take it to the dealer to get the whole thing wiped and put on again. Um, so I did it. And I thought, you know, okay, it's probably not going to work well, but it'll work, right? But it doesn't work at all. I mean, they they just so fundamentally can't do anything. I mean, they're they're like the worst Siri version ever, even though the number of commands is like 10 things that you can ask it to do, somehow never gets them right, right? <laughs> and I just think, this is ridiculous. The problem is that I also think that voice control will start to become the default because now they've overcome a lot of the problems with, you know, Siri is maybe not the best example, but I have a Google Home at home. Mm-hmm. And Google Home is exceptional. And, you know, you could be sort of sitting all the way across 
the downstairs watching TV with music playing and ask it something and it hears you and gives you the correct answer, you know, most of the time. Mm. Just think that's a huge shift in the way you are used to things. And I think that that is something that will come. Um, But I hope that all of the horrible, horrible versions that have come before don't burn the bridges for that potential. Because I think in a lot of ways, it makes sense that that's the natural place to go. That's why they pushed it so hard to get there. But it was before the technology was ready. Yeah, well, the, you know? the way that they're removing dials, knobs, and switches from inside the car, we're not going to have a lot of choice because it's not it's not well, it's safe not to do touchscreen as you're good. driving. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, and, and, and that is part of it. I mean, I think, I think buttons and knobs will come back in a generation from now. We have some conversations about that. Um, but I, you know, I we have, have a very have, big hobby have, horse about that that have, I get many splinters from. <laughs> yeah, we have frequent conversations about that internally um, because you know we're sort of always sort of shouting whenever we're working on projects. No, don't take all the buttons away. But there's a cost thing there that is very hard for the car companies to resist, hmm. and it's not going to be until people realize that it's not as good. Because um, right now, if you do user testing, people still actually say they prefer it. Um, so it's, you know, it's to be seen, but I think adding voice in a good way, you know, I think gestures, stupid, um, yes, lots of other things. Waste I mean, of time, that, in my opinion. Complete waste of time. It's like one of those things, we do it because we can do it, not F- because Fixing we a problem do. they've created. Exactly. <laughs> that, didn't exactly. Need, that we didn't need fixing in the first place. Exactly. <laughs> and, and create new problems in the process, which is, you know, nice, nicely done. Um, <laughs> How much time and effort did you spend on doing that? Yeah. So, um, but I think, I think voice might be the next thing, but, but currently I think no car does it well and they should have just waited until they could have done it well, because now there's a chance that nobody will want it or use it, um, until they get comfortable with their Amazon echoes and Google homes and series in a way. So it may take a whole nother generation to do something that maybe now would be possible already. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good answer. I like that one. Uh, right. Penultimate question. Um, who do you think I should talk to next? Hmm. So this one was tough. I had to, I had to really think about this and I actually wrote a list. Uh, So there's, I I have, I've three people who I think you should speak to. One of them I think would be fascinating because I don't really know anything about her except that her hair is pink. Um, no. Um, so pink Janeer is her Twitter name. Rachel Nichols is her actual name. And she is, an engineer at Mercedes F1. Oh, okay. um, um, and she's an American who was, worked at Swift, which is a company that made Indy cars. Mm-hmm. And then, and her sort of, you know, desire was to work in Formula One, which is super cool. So she's young American female who, you know, wanted to work in Formula One and did it. And so now she works at, at AMG McLaren or AMG Mercedes F1 in the UK. Mm-hmm. And she's, she seems really cool and stuff. I don't really know much about her. I've tried to sort of meet up for a beer a couple of times. And when I was in the UK, I've never managed to do it. So I'd love to sort of hear more about her story because quite honestly, fascinating. And she has pink hair. So there you go. You won't be able to see that, but you could talk about it. Um, uh, second one is 
Matteo Gilles. I don't know if you follow him on Twitter. These are all Twitter, all people who are on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is a former um, Ferrari designer who now is back in the UK. Um, and he does sort of bespoke one-offs and things like that mm-hmm. um, as a sort of freelance kind of thing. And he actually worked in Ferrari doing that. He did, um, he worked on, I think, the Eric Clapton um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 512. That's uh, one of his, I believe. Um, so, you know, things of that sort. And now he basically does that on his own, which is pretty cool. Um, I don't know if he'd have any interest in talking to you, but he also has some great stories that I'm sure the statute of limitations are up on. Um, so uh, those, and then the other one, I can't believe that you haven't spoken to him before, but Major Gav. Uh, working on that. Working yeah. on that. Because anybody who's that mental and has that many French cars should be on. <laughs> uh, he he is incredibly busy, is the problem. Yeah, I'm sure he is. That because, I'm, um, you know, I'm coming across. We're all busy, but he seems to be... Uh, he's, he's a very... He and I are talking, or our people are talking behind the scenes, i.e., me and him, uh, and we are we are doing our best to make it happen. Um, He 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 wants to come on. Uh, We're just trying to work out the time. But yes, absolutely. Uh, I he is one of the um, people that has uh, supported before the podcast came out to the point where we did do the podcast. So um, he's one of the reasons that I'm on. I'm on iTunes at all, so I'm not even surprised because it's like you know. I mean, I, I I put him on my list as sort of like, oh well, that's obvious. I'm sure that they've spoken to him because how could they have not? <laughs> and then I, I I actually before the call went on your previous podcast and was like, how is it possible they've never spoke? They've never had Major Gav on here. That doesn't even make any sense. It's like Petrol Blog is you know it's the sort of holy grail of motoring i mean it you know it's just kind of uh it's it's you know that work on it I, i'd love to hear his um much more than i'm sure i want to hear mine because <laughs> god who wants to hear their own voice for however many hours i've been speaking um i apologize for for the american accent uh up front um <laughs> there's no <yeah>. problem <laughs> Yeah, no, he's he's definitely on the list, and we are working on on getting him on those those other two. Uh, were not on my list, but I will now add them to the hit list or spreadsheet, as it's otherwise known. Um, <laughs> and uh, I will work on getting them on. Is there is there anyone else? Because you said you had a list. Or is that is, is... no? Uh, th- those are the big three. Those, those are the big three, three, right? Okay, well, yeah, that's, that's enough three. for me to work on. Good, uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> the, uh, you know that I had two that were not on your list. Um, already, already good. So no, excellent. Uh, Right, that's that's great. This just sort of rounds out now with um, what are the best ways for people to keep in touch with you or follow what you do or um, stalk you? The obvious best way is on Twitter. Um, you know, Drew Draws 2 on Twitter. Um, I'm there much more than I should be, and that is always the best place to find me because anything you say to me will almost always be responded to um, with more urgency than it should. Um <laughs> I'm, but I'm on all of the things, you know, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram and even Snapchat, even though I don't use it, but I have it. And, um, you know, you can always follow cardesignresearch.com is the company website. And we, tr- 
try to do updates, uh, but when things get really busy, that slips in favor of client work. Um, but we do have a blog there with some, you know, like to think we occasionally post some interesting things. Mm -hmm. uh, but also on Car Design News, because I do write um, design reviews. Um, for car design news and I'm known for being the harsh one on there. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, do, do, occasionally, do, do, do occasionally get by, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> occasionally I get pulled aside by somebody and say, why do you hate us so much? Um, which is always, I don't hate you. I just think you did a bad job with the car. Um, it's not at all the same. I don't know why they take it that way. Um, but yeah, so car design news, you can look for me, but that's a lot of that's behind a paywall. So I can't really do much about that. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you just want to hear me rant and rave about car design, Twitter is the best place to do that. Just, uh, leaves me now to say thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. I, I could talk, I mean, we have talked for a while here. Um, but I, I could have talked for days with you about, uh, what is good and bad design, uh, and, yeah, and, and well. listen to and listen to your, uh, opinions and feelings um especially especially as it would be it's it's more encompassing than 140 characters repeatedly yes 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 <laughs> apparently after two hours and 35 minutes apparently it is more than 140 characters typically <laughs> but uh you know 140 characters spread out over a day probably adds up to about two and a half hours of my time i don't like to admit um yeah well, no. Well, thank you so much for being on. I appreciate you having me on. It was uh, it was a pleasure. It was fun talking to you, and um, good luck. I, I I enjoy the podcast. I don't get to do podcasts very often because I don't drive anywhere, and that's the best place to listen to podcasts, of course. So I need to find some long drives so I can catch up on some of the ones I've missed. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Great. Right, cheers. Thanks once again to Drew for coming on Review and chatting to me. I hope you found our conversation as fascinating as I did. If you want to suggest someone I should ask to come on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag ReviewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it in Motoring Podcast Towers. To get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you'd like to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. Remember, we now have a Patreon subscription offer available at motoringpodcast.com forward slash support, uh, which if you take up, helps support the Motoring Podcast and whatever we produce on here. So until next time, that was Drew Meehan. I've been Andrew Clues and safe motoring.